The following podcast is brought to you by cdkoffers.com. Use offer code DIESHRING for 3% off everything on the website and Broken Silicon for 25% off all Windows codes. All right, on with the show. Welcome to Broken Silicon, a gaming hardware podcast. I am your host, Tom, and I am joined, as always, every other week by my co-host, Dan. And some would say that's about half the time, not always every other week. But well, what's wrong with what I said? Uh, you said always, always every other week. I don't know. It sounds funny to me. You are always on the podcast every other week. So every two weeks, you are always on, Dan. This okay. isn't the same as saying okay. it works 60% of the time every time. This isn't exactly <laughs> the same as that. It's I would say it's very close to a statement like that, like from Anchorman, but it is not. This is not like the Sex Panther statement where he goes, it works 60% of the time, it works every time. <laughs> yeah, this is not this is not quite that, Dan. And I stand by it. Okay. But welcome to Broken Silicon, the 23rd most popular podcast in Denmark, which I think is funny that it shot up so much in that country in the past couple of weeks, um, considering so many people in Denmark had pitchforks uh, raised at us a couple of weeks ago. Also, number five tech podcast in Costa Rica, which we were just the only competition we had were Spanish speaking, primarily podcasts there. So, hell yeah. I mean, I think we can. Besides, I think, a default Apple technology podcast or something, I couldn't figure it out. I think we might be the number one English-speaking tech podcast in Costa Rica, which that's, maybe I just listed a dozen qualifiers, but Dan, we're getting there. That's, that's a hell of a niche you can have carved out in the year 2020. Number one, baby. Hell yeah. <laughs> And um, yeah, I, I guess besides that, I just say thanks to the patrons for the contributions to the last die shrink. Those discussions on when an $800 GPU is worth it instead of $400 and just when it's ever worth it to spend extra on do-it-yourself components, um, which was, I think, a good die shrink to have come out at the launch of the $1,000 6900XT. You know, yeah. the reasonably priced 6900XT next to the 3090. It does look reasonable next to the 3090. I don't know if that means it's reasonable, but... Well, that will be, of course, a major part of this podcast, which did come out like uh, at most half a day late, just so we could, at least in the free feeds, so that we could cover the 6900XT launch. There's... um. So there's a lot I have to say about that, uh, <laughs> as usual. Um, but first, let us get in to some business here. Uh, BS Steiner 69 writes in and says, Hi, Tom. Since Off Topic Channel was removed from the Discord, are you going to create a space nerd channel for face plants and others to hype SpaceX and aerospace knowledge? So I, I, the reason I put this here is just kind of to catapult into a, just kind of a greater thing to bring up about the community. At the start, this is, I'd usually put this at the end of the podcast, but I, I think it's important, so it's worth putting at the beginning, which is I removed the off-topic channel in the 
uh, Moore's Law is Dead Discord, which you get access to at the proper, you know, tiers if you support us on Patreon. And it was simply because I would like every now and then it was just turning into hostile political debates. And I and I started thinking about and brainstorming with you know the higher end or not higher end the uh, top end members and um, what do I want to say uh, uh, moderators you know about what the best solution would be and as I started coming up with rules I went or I could just remove it <laughs> yeah and I came to the decision to just remove the off topic channel and it's because and I, and I've had to make these decisions many times as we grow the Moore's Laws Dead community which is five times bigger than it was at the beginning of this year, literally. And that's, I think you go into these forks in the road anytime you're a creator building a community and you have to decide, are we going to try to turn this into a bigger social club eventually? Or are we going to decide this is our piece of content and make it more manageable? And I think that's what I'm going to decide to do most of the time. You know, and I stated this in the Discord you know, if you want to argue about politics, go to Reddit. But my Discord will not turn into a, and I've seen this in so many other tech discords and Patreons and forums where it's like, eventually they just add these categories for a ton of things that aren't even tangentially related. And you go, do you need to support that? Because I think I think in this community, you should be able to come here. We're not going to shy away from talking about politics when it's related to the things that, that impact gaming hardware and gaming. But I'm certainly not going to be one of those people that's afraid to talk about it when it is on topic. But at the same time, I, I, I don't think you need to have everything and everything. And I think most people come here to just hear us talk about the 6900 XT and the latest games and that really no one's paying for a political discussion channel. <laughs> I mean, if you want to have arguments about politics on the internet, there are there's not a uh, a lack of places you can go. Right. And 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 that's just, you know, we only have so many moderators. We try to get as many as we can over time, but it's it's a slower process where I'm very careful with who not I mean, with who we can trust with really steering conversations because I've seen Again, I have to take that slowly because I've seen far too many, <laughs> as you've seen too, Dan, forums and discords turn into moderators crushing everyone. Like, yeah. And I just can't let that happen either. So it, it, it's just about making it more manageable. And I just you know want to put that out there, that this is a place you can come to listen to gaming hardware discussions without having to you know, worry about that type of thing. And, and, at this, and, I, and also just I need to say, as we get bigger too, there's going to have to be more and more things that we do to manage, you know, the community. And so the the purpose of the Patreon is to discuss the latest gaming hardware tech news and the latest content coming out of Moore's Law is Dead. And that's what it's for. Yeah. And we're going to err on the side of making it manageable so that there's as little overhead as possible so that we can afford to do this as a main job. Because <laughs> remember, you guys are paying for not just me, but Dan's time. Gerard's time, and we don't have a million subscribers right now, so <laughs> <laughs> it's very easy for me to err on the size of manageability as well, which is also yeah. to say that I have to announce, like, there there are a lot of, you know, members that are, I guess you'd say, I've called them hitchhikers as a joke, but, you know, people who aren't subscribed to the Patreon anymore in the Discord, this is just a heads up that I, I unfortunately do need to say, it 
if you want to be in the Discord, you're going to have to be at the proper tiers pretty soon. So this is just a final heads up as we go into 2021 that as we are no longer a Patreon of a few hundred people, but of almost a thousand people, and assumably we will get above a thousand, you need to be at the right Patreon tier to be in the Discord soon. So that's just a heads up to those people. And hey, look, if you don't have the extra money, that's fine. That will all of the extra content that we put out there and bank every week will be there whenever you decide to rejoin us, you know. So I don't know, just some business to get out in the beginning. Blokes writes in and says, Tom is big smelly. That is all. That's a good point. On the on the note of people rejoining <laughs> certain Patreon tiers, Blokes is back, as you can see, Dan. Well, that's good to see. And I'm glad the first thing he has to say is really important. <laughs> you know what, Blokes? As far as I'm aware, you've never been around me or Dan, so you don't know if we're smelly or not. Yeah. And I think that's the most important argument to make is that you don't know, man. <laughs> Which is to say that I think I'm not smelly, but I think the most defendable argument would be you don't know. You don't know. This is undisputable. It's one could not dispute it, Tom. All right. So let us get into story number one, which I kind of, and this is something I'm getting tired of discussing, but I figured let's put it in one more time since there was all this hullabaloo around the launch of our last Tom and Dan News Broken Silicon episode. I'm tired of talking about this. I think most people are tired of talking about this, but we did get reader mails about it. And so I figure instead of focusing on any one story, let's just have some final discussions about availability, marked up prices, what people are thinking right now with what is probably the highest demand we've seen in high-end gaming. I mean, what? In my lifetime. I mean, yeah, probably. I mean, it's starting to rival what happened when there was a mining boom, except it's mostly gamers. And I want to be very clear about that. Yes, NVIDIA is selling half of their cards to miners, but AMD isn't. And as far as I can tell, the majority of the cards being sold this quarter overall are going to gamers. And I mean, if you look at what's going on with the consoles as well, which cannot be used for mining, (laughs) it's very, very hard to get those as well. So there's just no way around it. This holiday season is all about people wanting the, the highest end gaming products to a, a greater degree than I than again than I think I've ever seen in my life. Yeah, like like we've said before, it's <laughs> it turns out that if you put everyone inside for a year, even though there's a contraction for some people in the economy that have that are going to have financial issues, but overall, apparently, it drives sales. <laughs> I, I wouldn't well, have predicted that, but that's what happened. Well, and you know, let me just, and you know, the people that were forced inside, most of the people that were, were people who have jobs that they could do remotely anyways. And so they probably saved up money this year. And so if you think about, you know, where sales are really being driven in the high end, yeah, this is coming from the people that saved up money all year. And and I, I don't know, I'll just speak for myself. I think as we look at, you know, as of this recording, the vaccines coming to the United Kingdom. It's coming to the U.S. soon, and the, and of course, Europe and the rest of the world. I think a lot of people are going, you know what? We're almost done. Let me just play games for a couple of months while we, you know, hopefully, hopefully get to some sort of almost to the end of this horrific quarantine period. Yeah, I mean, hopefully we secure doses quickly. <laughs> The Boston Beast writes in then, and on this availability discussion, he asks, I have a queued order for an Asus Tough 6800 XT for $850. Should I cancel it and wait for prices to normalize, or is it worth it in the current market? I mean, I guess I could always resell it, 
Um, and do you think AMD could enable resizable bar on a 5700 XT, 3800 XT combo? Well, let me answer that first. I think if AMD wanted to, yes. They, which he's talking about smart access memory. Oh, yeah. Yes, I think they could if they wanted to, clearly. Uh, and we'll get into that in a story later. But to more focus on your question, should you cancel an $850 order for the 6800 XT? Again, I think it comes down to when you'll be able to game and when you'll you feel it's worth paying extra to game at a specific time of the year. This is the same thing I said at the beginning of the year. And I was like, yeah, I would eventually sell my 2080 Ti for $1,200 because I, I just think that it's not going to be worth that eventually, which let me let me see how insane. This is when we'll know prices are truly insane as if it's back up. As, no. And so, there, yeah, there's a lot of people asking, you know, you know, I shouldn't have sold my 2080 Ti. When I look at buy it now, it's still nine hundred, and you were able to sell that for eleven hundred dollars a few months ago. So, <laughs> yeah. if you took my advice to sell the twenty eighty Ti, you can rebuy it now for less than you sold it for, guys. So that was <laughs> definitely good advice. Having said that, though, I mean, the argument I made back then, though, is if you're not going to sell the twenty eighty Ti, maybe it's because you just want a game this summer and you have the extra money and you don't want to bother with uh, shuffling cards around. And I get it. And and so that's all I can say to Boston Beast is at the end of the day. If you want it as soon as possible and you're willing to pay for it, then sure. But I, it's hard for me to justify paying over $700 for... Well, really, it's hard for me to justify paying over $500, if I'm being honest, yeah. for any graphics card. So 850 is just... I mean, at that point, I'd rather just spend the rest on the 6900 XT eventually, which obviously that's sold out, so of course. But I'm just saying, like, I wouldn't pay that much for the card. That's my honest opinion, man. I wouldn't pay that much for it. And so the fact that you don't even have it yet, I would cancel. I would have never placed the order. So I'm kind of the wrong person to ask. I mean, I don't think it's worth $850. And I think I would also add, how long is it going to be on back order for? Like, how long are you going to be in the queue to get it? as well. Which this is something to discuss as well as people, I think, hilariously comparing the 6800 XT launch to the 3080 launch, you know, the 3080 that launched three months ago to the 6800 XT that hasn't even been out a month. I'm getting a lot of people writing into me now that I'm starting to bring it up that they still don't have their 3080 pre-orders yet. <laughs> like yet, it's yeah. been three months. So these launches are not comparable yet. Give it three months, then we can compare them, people. Um, and so you just might have to accept that you're going to be waiting three months. And who knows what happens when they fill that order? Because as far as I know, AMD is steadily ramping Navi 21, and they are even shifting some of their wafers over to Big Navi because of how competitive it is with NVIDIA this time. And with that in mind, I, I don't think you can rule out that just in February, prices drop and it's available, and that they might just fill your order like a couple weeks before that happens. And I don't know. That would be the other thing I'd be worried about is if it becomes more easily available, like a month after you get it, prices might drop for these things by like 200 bucks. Hey, Tom here jumping in with a last minute update to the podcast after recorded the previous day that was being discussed that AMD would eventually discontinue the reference designs, which as of right now are the ones that are usually around MSRP. And well, a day later, uh, Scott Herkelman has just confirmed they are not discontinuing it. At least for now, AMD will indefinitely continue the reference design. And I thought this was worth adding to the podcast because, again, look, the reference design is the one AMD really has full control over pricing 
on AIBs with. And so if they keep making this and selling it from their own website, which never has marked up prices compared to Newegg or eBay, then this will cause downward pricing pressure. Again, I think it's about 25% of the 6800, 6800 XT cards are the reference design as of now. So who knows if it will continue that ratio? Who knows if AMD will only start making 10% of them at that reference design with reference MSRP? But the fact that AMD will at least, as we know right now, keep making reference designs that are usually around MSRP will cause downward pressure on pricing in quarter one. And so I just think that's worth remembering if you have a pre-order for an $850 AIB card. If you want to keep it, you want it as soon as possible, and you have the money, you don't care. Okay, that's fine. But just keep in mind that AMD is making the $650 version and has no intention to discontinue it as of now. So it might just show up for $200 less. And if $200 matters to you, it's worth thinking about. All right, back to the show. Boy Ram writes in and says, Hi there, Tom and Dan. Watching the hysteria scalping fanboy rage and supply issues have reinforced my general attitude of never pre-ordering hardware and waiting at least a few months for the market to settle down. You know, I got to say that that's been true every year. And it just seems like there's more anger this year. When has this not been true? When has it ever been possible to buy these cards at launch? I don't know if it's just because we're in it more because uh, of the channel that we're noticing the anger more. But I sure, feel like sure. it, I mean, like the anger is worse this year. And yeah, uh, it's always hard to get uh, graphics cards, whatever piece of tech you want when it comes out. It's never once been easy. You have to either wake up early to get the product and it still might not even happen. Like that's always how it's worked. And then compound that with, you know, COVID-related shipping issues and demand for high-end gaming products. Again, this is like reported, you know, and you guys can look this up. Demand's up 40% in addition to that. And it's like, I don't know, maybe that's why some of the anger's there. But I, I have to say, everyone's just probably stressed out from this year. And so that's where it's coming from as well, to be honest. Well, yeah, that's definitely part of it. Yeah, and I guess the one thing I, I keep saying, though, in the Discord as well, is the, the the one group of people that I definitely do feel bad for is if their PC just broke and they can't get anything reasonably. That, that, that I do feel bad for. Yeah, that, that, that does legitimately suck. L8N8 writes in and says, Hey, love the podcast. Just joined your Patreon today specifically to ask you this question. Well, thank you, Late Nate. Oh, L8N8. Yeah, it must be Late Nate. With all of us lamenting our inability to do anything about the PC game console scalpers, has anyone ever considered the role eBay and other online vendors play in all of this? Everyone is mad at NVIDIA, but beyond having anti-bot software, which I assume can always be thwarted somehow, they can't really be responsible for who purchases their products. And to a certain extent, I agree. Aren't the real villains in all this websites like eBay who directly profit off of these predatory transactions? Those jackals taking a 10% cut off of every $1,400 5950X that gets sold? I've been thinking about this for a while. And I have an idea. One that only someone like Tom could... Wait, wait. Only someone like Tom could make happen. Well, back up. We'll see. I don't know about that. I think people think I have way more power than I actually have, which is to say I have no power. Uh, we as the tech community will petition all the online retailers who allow scalping on their websites to adopt new sales guidelines that prohibit vendors from selling new products above their MSIP for a certain period of time after release. We could even form a volunteer organization of tech geeks to the online legwork of reporting them or even offer to volunteer on their end to verify, moderate reporting of scalping, thereby reducing the amount of resources they would have to allocate. I mean, 
I don't know, kind of stopping the reader mail there. What I would say is that I I don't think you can do that. I don't even know if that would be legal for them to be able to ask eBay to do that. Um, I mean, I guess they could ask. Well, what I was going to say is I think for something like this to actually happen, some form of legislation would have to be made about selling products for at MSRP. So essentially uh, banning reselling is what I'm talking about, I guess. Um, And I don't know, that's, there's probably some constitutional argument in the U S against that eBay doesn't really have an incentive to not allow this type of transaction on their platform. It's not illegal. Mm -hmm. It's just annoying. Like I, I I said this to Tom, like while we were talking one night that it's well, there's just these middlemen that add no value to anything they're selling that are just making money off of literally doing nothing. And it's incredibly frustrating, but I don't know what else to say. It's not always eBay, Amazon, and especially Newegg during previous mining booms has been incredibly guilty of artificially marking up prices during mining booms. And yeah, New- and it's because they can and people bought it. Yeah. Newegg sells their stuff all the time uh, at above MSRP. And as far as I know how Newegg works, there's, they're not being like product resellers. It's just, oh, they can mark it up because the demand is there. I mean, I think at the end of the day, I still put most of the blame on AMD and NVIDIA. Uh, they need to, I mean, when they sell products directly from their website, which they should try to sell as many as possible, both for their own profit margins, by the way, cutting out the middleman, and to just kind of set a base level so that there's always that there in the background. If in, you know, if like New Way gets too greedy, they always have to be concerned. Oh, but if we mark this up too much, what happens if AMD gets more stock before us? Then we're sit- we're sitting with all this inventory. You know, I-, I think it's up to NVIDIA and AMD to come up with systems that are as bot proof as possible, which is to say, you know, I-, I really think it's as simple as you should be able to pre-order a card directly through NVIDIA and AMD's website. You provide your credit card information, shipping information, and you have to pay up front. And then you're given an estimation of when you'll get the card. And maybe even at a certain point, some other type of verification as well, so that there's also this kind of wiggle room between when you pre-order and when it's shipped, where they can kind of verify the order and go, yeah, this doesn't seem to all be coming from one person. Yeah, because I... I'm not sure how all of these bot sellers are able to thwart like the steps they currently have, because as far as I know, like Newegg um, uh, for product releases would, I, I think they would only allow shipping of one item to a, a specific address, even if it came from different accounts with different credit card numbers and like different billing yeah. addresses. So they're able to thwart this and somehow. Yeah. And so, I, I mean... But at the very least, if you do that, it reduces how many, I would assume, one entity can order from any one website. Yeah. And it does create a ton of busy work. After that, the best thing that will combat these scalpers is, and I've talked about this before with these conglomerates that are buying up as many Xbox Series Xs and PS5s as possible, thousands of them and stockpiling them, that eventually what I can see happening to them sooner than you might think is as Sony and Microsoft ramp up production more and more, out of nowhere, you can walk into a Best Buy every other week and find one of these consoles. And the scalpers are stuck holding tens of thousands of consoles they didn't sell at a marked up price and they're just left with all this inventory. I mean, that's a part of the solution as well, is the scalpers getting bit in the ass at the end of this, which a lot of them will be. I, I mean, we'll see. 
it, depending on how much stock they have left, yeah, they could this endeavor to buy up as many PS5s and Xbox Series Xs and 3090s, whatever, will end up biting them in the ass, and I hope they lose money. But um, And then they'll think about doing it again. But the thing is, this is just a year where everything's in demand, and they struck opportunistically the you know and and a quarter where it just it was the time to do this if you're a scalper you know yeah and it's frustrating because i keep saying and me saying this isn't really going to change the situation but it's very frustrating um if people just collectively didn't buy them they would lower their prices and i know i'm uh, it's pointless frustration about this because well there's always going to be some person that's going to buy it because of money or game theory someone's always going to buy it and that's going to drive the increased price even though if we all just collectively agreed no we're not doing it but if less people did it would it would make an impact yeah what you're right and if and you have to remember that at this level of stockpiling if for instance they couldn't sell the scout ps5s for more than 700 they'd be making way less profits and eventually they'd probably decide the headache wasn't worth it yeah that's true Jory writes in and says, do you have any feelings on long-term solutions to scalpers? Just spitballing off the top of my head, online purchasing ID, a new plugin that detects your current PC hardware. <laughs> I guess that would work. Um, uh, yeah, I guess we already kind of a procedurally generated mini game that must be completed to purchase as an in-demand product. I suppose we kind of already answered this. I think we kind of just spilled into what Jury was asking as well. I, so yeah, I mean, I, I, mean, I, th- I think our thoughts are just a lot of this is there's a minimum amount of things they should be doing that they still aren't and that there's only so much you can do, right? Yeah, and I mean, some of the things he's talking about I think might happen eventually, like purchasing uh, something online might be connected to your like social security number in some way. I don't know. I don't really like that because those purchase num- it, that purchase information leaks a lot, so I don't... Like all the time I don't now. really want my social security number... Uh, frankly, uh, connected to the security of Newegg. (laughs) (laughs) Connor writes in and says, Hi, Tom and Dan. Warning, Dan may not be included. Okay, well, we'll see. Do you think NVIDIA is playing hardball with AIB prices because it will force AIBs to recoup the cost on their AMD cards, thus creating a price parity and feeding off the narrative they are as bad as each other? Um, I, I, I heard one interesting thing from one source which was something about a requirement for like validating cooler designs on one date to try to mess with their development of something on AMD at the same time. I wasn't able to verify that, though. Outside of that, though, I mean, to directly answer your question, no, I don't think so. I think NVIDIA is playing hardball with AIB prices to try to make as much profit as possible, and that's that. Um, (laughs) And that AIB is didn't make as much profits this year from NVIDIA as they wanted to, both because the margins on Ampere are thinner than usual and because they didn't get to sell as many as I think NVIDIA, frankly, led the AIBs on to believe, right? Yeah. That they kind of led them on to believe, oh, don't worry, more stock will be coming. And they just kept selling them to miners. I think they're just trying to make it up on the other end with AMD. And frankly, again, I, I, I think, there's a point not enough people are making, which is, oh, AIB is this, oh, availability that. I know the 3060 Ti was provided in very large numbers, and it sold out at 500 guys. So <laughs> it, it's us. Yeah. It's people buying it that's doing most of this at this point. I, I mean, yeah, of course it is. Like 
availability is starting to get better, but uh, for newer products, but that doesn't mean that it's any easier to get them because right now it seems like people just pay whatever price they need to, to get it or a number of people will. And eventually, I think sooner than people might expect, prices could just collapse when supply meets demand and the people willing to spend 30% extra, there wasn't as many as they thought. But yeah, yeah, at the same time, that's how supply and demand works, you know? Just buy it or don't. If you can wait, then wait. It's really up to you, you know? Yeah. I'm not going to be one of those people that... Well, it doesn't really matter because we're about to get into it. A lot of the tech tubers... Well, yeah, let's just get into it. Aiden FS writes in and says, at least the 6900 XT is a better card than the 5700 XT 50th anniversary edition, which was $50 more for gold trim and a card with a tiny overclock. It's like 2% better or something (laughs) hilarious. So that is the opening reader mail for story number two. 6900 XT reviews are out. AMD competes at the top of the phony GPU war of 2020, which is what I titled my own video. I'm also going to quote here from TechSpot. The Radeon RX 6900 XT was never going to make sense, not unlike the GeForce RTX 3090, even though NVIDIA's card does get you a lot more VRAM. Essentially, the 6900 XT is in the same boat as the is the same as the 6800 XT, with a few extra cores enabled for 5 to 10% more performance. For the 6900 XT to make sense from a value perspective, it shouldn't exceed the $750 price point, relatively speaking, assuming you could, of course, buy a 6800 XT for $650, which you can. But we're really, but we're hoping for that to come back down in early 2021. In a world where GPU availability wasn't an issue, there's literally zero reason to buy the 6900 XT. The same is also true for the RTX 3090 over the 3080, unless you required the extra VRAM for some reason. Short of that, there's no reason to spend much more money for basically the same product, which is funny because I put together my 6900 XT analysis video before reading the ending of the tech spot, you know, the written up version of his video, I didn't realize he also literally mentioned 750 as a more interesting price point for this graphics card. Although I guess it's worth pointing out, is it a more interesting price point when you have people pre-ordering 6800 XTs for 850? You could argue it's the same relative difference anyways. I mean, the price was on the 6900 XT, whether it says 750 on their website or not, or a thousand on their website. It was probably going to get to a thousand on uh, functionally, and if you go to eBay and buy it from resellers, I'm sure they're selling it for like. I think it's already like twelve hundred yeah. or something stupid. And tomorrow it's going to be at fourteen hundred. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I mean, which I guess for, uh, is a better isn't as bad as a fourteen hundred dollar PS Five. <laughs> no, it's not as bad, <laughs> uh, relatively speaking. But yeah, so I guess just to summarize my thoughts on the sixty nine hundred XT, I guess you know. As expected, it beat the 3090 in rasterization in 1440p, guys. For, I mean, I mean, how much less money do you want to say it is? 500, 1,000? It depends what you can get a 3090 for. Yeah. Um, it did lose in 4K, though, slightly. But I think it was interesting. It, it wins in 1440p by less than it loses in 4K, just kind of showing that I really, and I highlight this in my video, think they should have put faster memory on there. And it kind of led me to the conclusion that Look, guys, and and it's funny how many people in the comments are like mad that I'm being critical of AMD for some reason. I think the 6900 XT is the overall more impressive card than the 3090. I literally say that in my video, and uh, you know that gives you my opinion on the card. But at the same time, I think it could have been even better. 
I think either they should have pushed it, even if it would require a delay, with faster memory, liquid cooling, and higher clocks. Or they should have just sold it for a little bit less, even if availability was less. Because either way, again, it makes the 3090 look stupid. Point taken, AMD. You mashed NVIDIA's top card, kind of. And you did it for less money. NVIDIA's just charging more for no reason now because they don't really have the performance crown by much. Yeah. Point taken, AMD. Having said that, you know, I think you could have made a bigger splash if you sold it for like 800 or less, or if you decided to really give it faster memory and win in rasterization for 1,000. And I know it's just a symbolic thing either way. All these cards are within 10% of each other, so what does it matter? But I think symbolically beating it in rasterization would have been worth delaying the card, and that's just a point I made in my video. I don't know what. What did you think looking at all these reviews? And what I would uh, what I would add to that is, if they beat it in rasterization performance, it would have been a little bit like just out and outright beat it in rasterization performance. It would have been like narratively a more interesting discussion because it's like it pretty much matches at the thirty ninety rasterize. It's a lot worse than the thirty ninety when it comes to ray tracing, but I don't know. You you spent fifteen hundred dollars to play um, what thirty frames per second in fourteen forty p cool, so I think the other piece to add is that it's not nearly as good at ray tracing. So if they would have won in one of those, it would have been a more interesting discussion because it's like still technically a weaker card for five hundred less dollars, and it's barely weaker, but still a little weaker. Right. And it's funny how um, whenever I put out these videos, I can't help but get attacked by either AMD or NVIDIA fanboys. Because when I look at the comments of my video right now, most people, again, overwhelmingly upvoted, you know, like 95, 96% upvoted, whatever. But there's a decent amount of people, at least when the video first came out, saying, what do you mean? It's, it's not that impressive. It's $500 less than the 3090 for roughly the same performance. And I go, well, I do think it's overall more impressive, but like you just said, Dan, it would be more interesting. It's a missed opportunity. AMD made a product that isn't bad, but it could have been great. Yeah. That's my point. I, I think it's good. I just think it could have been great. And I think that's a point more people need to make is that AMD really could have taken more mind share if they would have played it a little differently. And I think they still are going to take a lot because... Oh, yeah. Like they, they put AMD and NVIDIA put out almost the same card and AMD is selling it for $500 less. <laughs> yeah. And I guess when I, I'm trying to think of like other things about this graphics card, I, I think a lot of people here are saying, well, it's the same performance. It's like it loses in ray tracing by a lot. And I actually, did you see this, Dan? Today, Minecraft RTX came out of beta. Oh no, I didn't see that. What a surprise that they decided this day to make Minecraft RTX to come out of beta. You know, but the, the, the point is it, it does perform far, far less than the 3090 yeah, in like, ray tracing games right now. I'm not convinced that will be true forever. I've said this multiple times, but right now that's the case. And right now I can't imagine someone willing to spend over $1,000 on a graphics card who doesn't just want the best. And technically there are a couple weaknesses in this card. Yeah, I mean, I think I was looking at it, especially once you start getting to like high or ultra settings for ray tracing, the uh, 6900 XT loses by like 50%. Well, is like two thirds the frame rate when like ray tracing is high or ultra usually. That's a pretty big uh, performance difference. Now, 
once again, we're talking about like 30 frames per second versus 20 frames per second. So neither of them are good. <laughs> and that's just because ray tracing is a pretty new feature that I think is still kind of a gimmick. Which I think is also, to be fair, worth pointing out. I say the 3090 is technically the stronger card. It wins in 4K by 5%. And if you turn on ray tracing, it wins by a lot more. That makes it, you know, quote unquote, stronger. Mm -hmm. But you also have to acknowledge, and I point this out in my video, I looked at Fortnite ray tracing performance uh, that was analyzed on Hardware Unboxed. And it was like in 1440p with low levels of ray tracing with DLSS turned on, the 3090 got just above 60 FPS and its minimums were below 60. So this is a $2,000 card with low ray tracing and DLSS turned on, which has artifacts getting minimums not above 60. So I think even though it's the stronger card, you have to point out that is anyone actually going to turn on ray tracing in most of these games when the performance is that bad? It's twice what AMD is, but it's still not very good or acceptable. It's an esports game. Well, it can't even hold 60 minimums in 1440p with a $2,000 card. It's a waste of your time to turn on ray tracing. I mean, yeah, I probably wouldn't turn it on. And based on that information alone is a big reason why I'm going to skip this generation because this new feature that's being touted isn't very good yet. Yeah. So let's get to, we've got quite a few reader mails here about the cards. Voodoo61238 writes in and says, the 6900 XT is an impressive product that's great for the industry and consumers overall, I think. Can you get it? Not right now. Is it good value? No. The top most product tier never is. Is it good at ray tracing? No, but that's expected. That's a lot of no's, though, for saying, you know, see, this is why I say it's good, but not great. But he goes on, to me, the most interesting thing was benchmarks where these AMD optimized games had the 6900 XT handily in the lead. I wonder what this might indicate for AMD-based consoles impacting GPU performance over the next couple of years. Well, I would say two things. Number one, don't always just say it's the console optimizations. The 6900 XT is 128 ROPs. Infinity Cache, it's a strong architecture in its own right. I don't think it's just because of the console optimizations. Yeah. But also, yeah, I, I think, and I think I pointed this out in my 6800 XT review day video. I don't know. When you look at the newest games, AMD's doing really well. And I resent some reviewers that go in these titles that favor AMD more than on average. But then you look at the average, and it seems like the ones favoring AMD are all games in the past eight months. Uh, that's an indication that a, a, AMD may actually be stronger than you think overall next year. And so I just, and we're almost to next year. I, I, I do think that's worth pointing out again. I don't know. A lot of the latest games, the 6900 XT crushes the 3090. And I would not surprise me if it's ray tracing performance caught up quite a bit once developers got more patches out next year. I mean, yeah, and that's, frankly, that's just a thing that we won't... We won't know it until we're probably a year out. Well, yeah, I would say like a year out from right now or six months uh, is the uh, 6900 XT quote unquote catching up in performance. I mean, that's happened before that certain architectures <laughs> age way better than others. And it's interesting to see that um, it might happen again with another uh, product line where NVIDIA's products are kneecapped by having too little RAM. Oh, yeah. So there's that as well. 
Polanski writes in and says, supposedly bin chips for the 6900 XT will have a 100-watt higher PSU suggestion, 850 versus 750, with only 100 megahertz higher boost, though, based on Linus Tech Tips benchmarks. Do you think AMD is holding back on the stock boost range to allow overclockers to crank the numbers, which is the card for better overclocking results when comparing to the 3090? Or do you think they were more focused on having more tame power usage as the reception from the new 3000 series looked bad on this front? I just think that they put it at the clock speeds that they think overall would be the best balance and that if they would have put faster memory, they probably would have erred more towards clocking it faster. But that, it, guys, you, you don't, there's no point in adding 30% more rasterization performance when it has the same bandwidth as a 6800 XT. Especially <laughs> when, again, think about it, they always planned on probably the 6800 XT being the top card. There's a last minute decision to not do that. So it's not as well balanced. And I think they said... We could add more performance, but not without the extra memory. So we might as well at least make it the most efficient card on the market that's in this performance range. Once again, that makes them look like the winner over NVIDIA in this regard, even if there's it's a slightly weaker product overall. Which again, I, th- I, I never thought there was going to be a lot of availability of the 6900 XT, certainly not at launch. I thought, I, I was actually thinking, I wouldn't be surprised if it literally was a paper launch for this one. It was always there symbolically to show, hey, look, we're right next to NVIDIA's top card and no one said we would be. And I highlight that in the video too. Like, look at the 5700 XT launch. Above it was the 2070 Super, the 1080 Ti, the 2080, and the 2080 Ti. Like, there's no longer you have a situation where AMD's just looking up at like a pack of NVIDIA cards, both previous gen and current <laughs> gen. Now you have, it's like, eh, no, it's, it's up there. NVIDIA can't really claim they have any huge performance win. I mean, no, they they don't anymore. Yeah. Deco writes in and says, one thing we haven't seen all too significantly are overclocking these results yet for the 6900 XT. In terms of performance, surely people are too preemptively judging the cards when it should beat the 3090 once manual overclocks have been tested in the coming days. I think overclock to overclock, it will be enough to make the 6900 XT overall equal in rasterization, if not slightly stronger. I mean, uh, I would agree. Tragaholic writes in, in fact, and he says, if, when, I would say when, we see a Sapphire Toxic model, how much more performance will it be able to eke out with the poor gains we get from overclocking and the hard limits on core and memory? Well, they won't have those on their AIB model, (laughs) right? I mean, what, EVGA just released a BIOS for one of their 3080s that gave it a 480-watt TDP, which is... Nice. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So with that in mind, I kind of actually doubt Sapphire would do that. Uh, That's insane. But I think the important thing to say is when I answer this question about a potential Sapphire toxic 6900 XT is the difference between possible and what they'll do. I can't promise you what they'll do. Yeah. I don't know for sure. But I know there's 18 gigabit per second memory out there that would give you 12.5% more bandwidth. And I know in labs, I've heard that they have 19 gigabit per second. I would doubt they would use that though, but I know that exists. So at the end of the day though, they can at least give it a 10% bandwidth boost. And I bet at stock settings with the proper cooling, they could make this thing instead of running it. I think Hardware and Box found it was generally running at 2.2 to 2.3 gigahertz most of the time. I bet they could make it run at 2.5 gigahertz generally. So with a 10%, I think they could easily add 10%. I think they can add 10% performance. Um, Whether they will or not, we'll have to find out. They really went all out. I mean, again, remember the 7970 Toxic added like 
30, 40% bandwidth or something absolutely <laughs> absurd. Like it was like 1600 megahertz memory instead of 1375. So yeah, they had like 25% more bandwidth and they uh, they had 1200 megahertz stock clocks in its boost mode, which was, <laughs> which compared to the gigahertz edition even was, you know, like a 20% boost almost. So I, if they really wanted to, I bet they could clock this at 2.6 gigahertz, give it 19 gigabit per second memory. But I would guess they would probably go with 18 gigabit and 2.5 five gigahertz it, it would be fun to see them do another <laughs> another like 797 style all out. yeah it's all it's always fun when you see uh like sapphire especially likes doing it just releasing like a stupidly overclocked thing because like well this is the toxic edition this is this is where we were just uh unmitigated uh performance increase that's all we care about yeah which i think and, you know, I, of course, I interviewed uh, someone from Sapphire last year. We talk about this, how they don't want to put out a toxic unless it deserves it. Like, what's the point in putting out, for example, an RX 480 toxic when what is it at best going to do? Be almost a 1070 while using more energy and we're probably costing the same as a 1070. <laughs> like, is there really a point in releasing that? And I, I would guess they will see a point in releasing this, especially like when you think about it, they could... I, I think AMD would have to approve it though. Like if they put like 32 gigabytes on it, they could charge two grand if it beat the 3090 by five, 10% with more memory. There's a market for people to buy that now. <laughs> and yeah, they could advertise it as the strongest card on the market. So Raul writes in and well, it's really Raul writes in and says, do you think the 3080 Ti 20 gigabyte will bring down the cost of the 6900 XT considering it's expected to cost $1,000 with four more gigs of RAM? I don't know. I, I mean, it would probably be the same. Again, right? When you look at a 3080 Ti, what's the performance? Well, the 3090 is 10% stronger than the 3080. So somewhere around a 3080 and somewhere around a 3090. I think it would basically tie the 6900 XT. I, I don't think it would bring down the price at all right away, depending on when it launches, which I believe it was dated to launch late January is what I last reported. Uh, but long term, I could see the 6900 XT coming down if AMD actually decided to supply a lot of them. I just don't know that they plan to. Yeah, and, and that's another interesting thing: the 3080 Ti being twenty, I mean a thousand dollars. Something I, I I don't know if they would launch it for twelve hundred, but I feel like they could, at least in the current market. I mean, they could. The rumor I heard was to a thousand, but who knows what they'll decide to do? Yeah, yeah. But I think, don't you agree? Like, it all just comes down to if AMD ever plans to have the 6900 XT have any decent volume, which everything I've heard is no. <laughs> if they do, though, sure, maybe it will come down in price a bit. But I don't think they see a... I, I, I'd be skeptical they care. Yeah, I mean, where they're going to sell most of their stuff is like the 6800 and 6700 XT. And probably. they would prefer to. Yeah. <laughs> they want to sell the 80 compute unit cards for three to, for two to three grand to the professional market. Yeah. Um, Dystopia writes in and says, do you think AMD will lower the price of the 6900 XT in the few months? Oh, so same question, basically. Um, I don't know. Not in the next couple months. Uh, it would, they would have to be getting incredibly good yields and have extra of the best yields to not send a data center to decide to just keep supplying it to gamers. I don't think it would officially go below a thousand. I think you would just see more inventory on Newegg and the AIB models drift lower. I don't think they would officially cut any prices. Do, uh, does AMD officially cut prices? Too usually, or do they just do the? I mean, they have in the past, okay. but lately, I, it hasn't been happening a lot with any either of these companies. I mean, things are just holding their value way, way better than they usually do. So there's no reason to. Yeah, 
Shifty McHacks writes in and says, with AMD and NVIDIA now trading blows at the high end, do you foresee competition ramping up? In other words, quicker release cycles with bigger improvements, or do you think AMD and NVIDIA will maintain the status quo and stick to incremental upgrades like every two years? I mean, yeah, like what Turing, which we all thought would be more temporary, really lasted for a full two years, <laughs> the two years of Turing, you know? And I, I don't know, I, I, I think that, yes, there will be more competition. I mean, I think you already saw that with even just the RX 5000 series with NVIDIA launching a million versions of all of their cards in response. And I think you're going to see that happen more and more. Whether they do a full re-release or not, I don't know. I continue to believe the best move from NVIDIA, depending on how things pan out in the first half of next year, would be to just kind of release a refined Ampere launch as the RTX 4000 series, even if it's only 20% better overall at most. Uh, I think I think they should do that next year because why not? Because I think there's room for it. Yeah, I, I mean, and I think I agree. I think competition will ramp up. I think, as opposed to what we've had for a while, which is like a year and a half to two years, it might condense down to like a year, like you say, maybe even a couple one or like with Nvidia, like a nine month cycle one time. Um, but yeah, I think releases are probably going to get more frequent for a few years. Yeah, and, and I think even if you look at, like, for instance, there there is a 2080 Ti Super. It exists, you know. it's They <laughs> use it, I believe, in their GeForce Now is what it's called, um, servers, and they're 12 gigabytes, uh, 2080 Ti's. They exist, and they were like 10, 15% stronger than the 2080 Ti. And in fact, what I always heard is, oh, no, they're there. They use them in their servers, and they were just prepared to start selling them on Newegg if AMD ever launched big RDNA 1. They just never did, so they never <laughs> cared. But now that AMD's competing in the high end, yeah, you can bet NVIDIA's never going to like AMD being better positioned. They're always going to be trying out new products to try to keep keep the momentum on their side. Yeah. Third Gamer writes in and says, I think that AMD made the 6900 XT to get rich 8th graders to make their parents buy it. Ah, uh, good point. <laughs> you know, I don't think so. I think uh, some of the console scalping is the rich 8th graders. I-, I think when it comes to these graphics cards, we just need to accept that a majority of gamers are over the age of 30 and have the money to buy them. Yeah, I mean, most DIY people I know are... Uh, people... I've noticed at least start getting into it usually when they're in like high school. The people that get into it when they're younger are people that had parents that are DIYers. So they kind of just inherited that from them. Well, speaking of do it yourself cards, let's talk about another one, Dan. Best transition <laughs> in history. Story number three RTX 3060 Ti launches an overclocked 2080 Super 4 for $500. I have 400 crossed out and I put 500 there. Of course, I've already done a video on this and this was last week, but you know, it's worth covering in the news. And so I'll quote here no matter which way you slice it, though, right now the 3060 Ti is the best value $400 card on the market. There's simply no way you'd invest in a 5700 XT anymore. Then again, if availability is anything like what we've seen from the 3070, 3080, and 3090, buying a 3060 Ti is going to be extremely difficult at launch. Based on what we're hearing, availability will be similar to that of the 3070. Yeah, actually, it was more. Uh, there will be some 3060 Ti stock available, but it'll sell out right away and will be hard to get for the next few weeks. Another relevant point to this conversation, of the four 3060 Ti graphics cards we have on hand, 
None of them will be available at the $400 MSRP, which is different than the 3080. At least then they had 10% of the stock at a token MSRP price. <laughs> uh, the yeah. EVGA 3060 Ti for the Win 3 Ultra, man, that name's not long enough, is expected to cost $450. Well, the MSI RTX 3060 Ti Gaming X Trio. Then why is there an X in the name? I think what happens is they keep making more and more car new models with like, different brands evolutions of the previous brand or something yeah so i think the brands keep morphing so they get more and more ridiculous as time goes on that's my assumption at least and i'm derailing my own reading of the tech spot review but i'm sorry when i look at this it's like gaming x trio just call it the gaming x or the the trio i well i don't know man what's happening i don't know (laughs) it would be like it was like xbox series x trio you already have qualifiers. Well, we need more qualifiers for no reason, Tom. That's why. Call of Duty Black Ops Cold War. No. Call of Duty Cold War. Yeah. <laughs> it's, Everyone's it's going insane. Let me continue this. I do need to finish this at some point. The trio will sell for 470 and we expect we'll see a similar price from Gigabyte's 3060 Ti Gaming Overclock Pro. Three. Asus didn't get us proper pricing and time for this review, but rest assured that the ROG Strix will cost at least 500 But yeah, there was one model I saw that was almost 590 before they changed it last minute, at which point you might as well start looking at buying a 3070. See, I already covered the 3060 Ti. I mean, now you've had time to digest it. What, what are your thoughts on the 3060 Ti, Dan? Um, they released a card um, about, what, 20% stronger than a 5700 XT. Mm-hmm. A year later, for the same price, and it's de facto five hundred dollars. So, yeah. if you can get it for four hundred dollars, year over year increase for a price point, yeah, it's fine. It's better, and it has newer features, you know. Yeah. So, yeah, I think at four hundred, the thirty sixty Ti, it's fine. Not great though, because really, it's a year and a half later. more performance. That's like the bare minimum. I wouldn't say that's great value. No, it's not. I would just, it's again, it's only great value compared to the 2080, which used to cost twice as much, but the 2080 was always dubious value. It's just like the 6900 XT isn't great value. It's just way better than the even worse 3090. (laughs) So, but at 400 or below, which I hear they may actually get it down there because they do want to put pressure on Navi 22. I think it's fine. But above 400, especially above 430, uh, I don't know. Yeah, I, I'm with like you. Uh, at five hundred dollars. It's not better price performance than the fifty seven hundred XT. No, it's not, and that's the price of the fucking thirty seventy. <laughs> well, no, the thirty seventy is now almost six hundred. Or if you want to <laughs> buy it now, probably nine hundred. But yeah, which overseas it often is. Yeah, that sucks. <laughs> Yeah, so it is what it is. I mean, again, it's like, and you can kind of see it in the reviews from like Gamers Nexus and Hardware Unboxed where they're just like not excited because it's like, what are we even advising, you know? Here's the performance. Here's the price. Good at this, bad at this. Good luck. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and I know this isn't a completely new story, but it's hard to be super excited about a mid-range card being $400. I don't know. Which is what I talked about in my 3060 Ti video too, which is like, I just have to accept the mid-range is now 400, even though I always thought of it as like 350 or lower. And I, But I'm going to tell you what, if all of these mid-range cards start launching for 500 or more, which they kind of were with Turing, guys. I mean, the 2070 was, GA, was TU-106 
and they were selling that for 600 at launch. I'm just not in. I'm yeah. not advising it. Uh, it's uh, it's not worth it, you know. And it, and it's not in my best interest to say that. My best interest is to hype everything up so you watch more videos. But I have to be honest, you know, I'm not going to be recommending mid range cards that are over 500. It's an eight gigabyte card, yeah, guys. Because- Those used to be 200. <laughs> yeah, I know. I mean, come on. So it, it, it's because 500, 500 in a semi reasonable world, 500 is like the beginning of the high end, or Maybe, yeah, the beginning or maybe even the middle of the, the high lower end. high end, usually. Yeah. yeah. But that's not what we're looking at anymore. So I don't know. Cajun Canuck writes in and says With the initial prices of Ampere and RDNA2 AIB cards combined with extraordinary demand, do you expect these prices to move much before next summer? Uh, tentatively, I say yes, actually. Next. I do. Yeah, six months. I think there will be a time for I, things I, to be less crazy. Especially if AMD's aggressive with Navi 22, which Crispy Bacon writes in and says, Would you bet a thousand dollars that the 6700 XT will be AMD's sub $500 2080 Ti? I would not, because it will not be as strong as the 2080 <laughs> Ti based on story number four. So, story number four, I just titled Everyone Leaks Navi 22, Navi 23, and even Navi 24. And so yeah, it's hard to even know where to begin here. I did my own 6700 XT leak. I know that others were leaking it, like Patrick Schur and Igor. So let me just let me let me just um, summarize what's come out. To be clear, Navi 22 and Navi 23 have had little leaks here and there for the past year, including from Moore's Law is Dead. However, in the past week, the floodgates have truly opened from Twitter leakers, Igor and yours truly, Moore's Law is Dead. In summary, Navi 22 6700 XT seems poised to perform 8 to 16% better than the 5700 XT while offering 50% more VRAM, less power usage, and most likely a lower price than the MSRP of the 5700 XT. It isn't so much a 3060 TI killer so much as a card to bring console level performance to below $400. And Dan, you saw my bill materials info below, which I shared with you, but it's confidential. I can't share mm-hmm. publicly. It's If it's not below $350 or $330, I think this card is in trouble because I do believe the 3060 TI will try to get to $400 or lower. Having said that, there's no reason it shouldn't be. AMD will be making what I've called the Lisa Sue tax, which she's publicly stated they want 45% margins on all products moving forward. Even at a 45, around a 45% profit margin, they could sell this for 350 or 330. So it's not just optimism. It should be that price. And if it isn't, I will probably be hard on AMD. Most likely, the cut down 6700 non-XT will be positioned firmly below 300 based on what I've been told, likely with just six gigabytes against the GA106 RTX 3060. Performance should be a hair less than the 5700 XT or roughly around the same. Although do note that there are 10 gigabyte models circulating both in the professional lineup and being mentioned for mobile mobility laptops. Patrick Schur on Twitter seems to confirm a mobile variant that has 10 gigabytes in addition to six gigabytes. So yeah, I'd say whatever it is, what I'm hearing is the 3060 Ti was about 10% stronger than AMD expected. For whatever reason, it's actually, I think, more than what we should have expected. But at the same time, Navi 22 is about 5% weaker than I expected. And so, yeah, they're they're kind of gearing up the 6700 XT to have enough VRAM, 
be competitively priced against the 3060 Ti, and then kind of make the 6700 more of a budget option. Uh, and then moving on, Navi 23 is also leaked again with 32 compute units and a 128-bit bus, likely without any Infinity Cache, which I guess let me also say that I already confirmed in loose ends, 96 megabytes of Infinity Cache in the 6700 XT. Um, and the Navi 23 is positioned for 1080p gaming. Um, it has half the bandwidth and no Infinity Cache compared to the 5700 XT, but with RDNA 2s, uh, you know, enhancements over RDNA 1. I actually could see this performing similar to a 5700 in 1080p. Well, not, certainly not at higher resolution. So I think that would be good if it was positioned, you know, closer to 250 or 200. And then, of course, Navi 24, 128-bit, 24CU, likely the replacement of the 5500 XT in the sub-$200 market. Okay, <laughs> there you go, Dan. What are your thoughts on all of this? Uh, it's kind of hard to say all, uh, thoughts on all of this because it's just a well, lot so let's, of Let's go step by step. You know, Navi 22. Uh, Navi 22, if it's, if it's like three, 300 to 330 or something like that, that would be interesting to see. Pretty much 50, like what? 5700 XT performance, like you said. 100. Well, to- stronger. Probably yeah. more like 2080 performance, 2080 okay. super performance, but also with 12 gigabytes of RAM. The way you might put it is not 2080 Ti performance, but Titan Pascal performance for 300, around 300 bucks. And so it would be about a 2080, but have enough VRAM for higher resolutions if you want to play at 60 hertz, which I think is just worth pointing out that's like the same performance as my Radeon 7 in more than 8 gigabytes of RAM. So, I, look, I, I've been very outspoken. Given the right settings, I can play any game at almost any resolution with the Radeon 7, despite people freaking out for $800 cards. Just turn down a few settings to high or medium, and I'm gaming in 4K, often around 100 hertz. Bringing that level of performance to the $300 market, I think, is more interesting than bringing 2080 Ti performance to the $500 market because most people don't want to spend $500. That would be good to see. It's a pretty decent year-over-year increase in, uh, of performance for that price point or a technically lower price point. And I also think it's just kind of interesting the um, the like gulf in performance potentially between like the 6800 XT I mean, 6800 and the 6700 XT being actually, in my opinion, like somewhat reasonable, like these, uh, it's nice to see these product stacks not being completely compressed to the high end. Like they seem to. Well, but yet so far away from each other. Yeah. It's it's interesting to see them go for that, like not go for the two markets. Yeah. It's interesting for them to, that they're pretty much not targeting that top mid-range uh, price point this year, time around. That's becoming so inflated. And, and and I think it's worth, I think there's a couple of things to highlight here that, uh, look, at the end of the day, I, I don't know. I think $500 is already a lot to spend on a graphics card. So hopefully they can at least keep the around $300 market satiated. I mean, it's been actually an underserved market for the past couple of years. What, the 5700 XT was 400? And then the 5500 XT was just, an RX 590 with less power usage. Like, pretty boring card for the same price as an RX 590 or maybe slightly less money. I think there's a lot of people with RX 580s or RX 480s that are still sitting there or 1070s that might go, ooh, this is 50% stronger than my card for, you know, 300 bucks. I'm in. Yeah, those people, re- that 
market really hasn't been served for a while, I guess. Um, the other thing to address about Navi 22 is, to be honest, if you go back and look at my big Navi leak, which touched on early info I had on Navi 22 as well, this really isn't that different than the performance I said. I said above 2080 super, and it could be at certain resolutions. So it's like five. I mean, remember, the 2080 super is like 5% more than the 2080. So it's really actually pretty close to what I expected, maybe a little lower, but it shouldn't really surprise anyone. Like, if you look at the 6800 and the 6700 XT, assuming this info is correct, which I think it is completely verified by now, to be honest, like a lot of people are going, this doesn't make any sense. Navi 22 has 20% more IPC than, you know, than RDNA 1 and 20% higher clock speeds and infinity cache. It has to be 30%, 40% better than the 5700 XT. And so to that, I would say, so you're saying it's somehow only 10% weaker than or 20% weaker than the 6800, despite the 6800 having 50% more compute units? Um, I don't think having a slightly higher clock speed than the 6800 makes up for that. Yeah. No one I should mean, have I, ever expected this to be a 2080 Ti. I don't know where that assumption comes from aside from maybe that's a product some some people want that they're just not going to get. I don't know because, yeah, it is pretty big. Like I'm looking at the graphics, uh, the uh, graphs right now for performance. It's like, yeah, that is like a 40% performance difference between their the start of their high end and the end of their mid range is like a 40% in uh, the 18 game average and like 1440p. That's pretty huge. Um, And I don't know, maybe that they just don't see that much of a market in the in that no man's land that I guess the six. Well, that's what I would highlight too, is this is intentional. A lot of people would say, well, well, then what are they going to do? And I would say, I don't know that like, I don't think they're going to cut down the 6,800 more could be wrong, but that thing's already cut down a ton from 80 to 60. Look at the Radeon seven. That was four compute units cut down. (laughs) Look at like, this is very, very cut down already. I think the 6,800 is the model where they just make sure they can use almost all of their yields, even if they have defects i don't think they need a lower tier than that again we'll see but and so when you look at two dies then and one's an 80 cu one and then one's a 40 well they intended this they intended they must have said you know what we can compete in the high end and also the high-end card will be used in data center and then also we need to continue to serve the arcs 480 market that we neglected last gen and i just think that's what they're trying to do well and i'm trying to remember because i feel like we've said this before like when uh when we didn't know what RDNA 2 was, aside from outside of leaks, was that was the what we had heard a couple months back is that Navi 21 is 80-something compute units and 22 is 40, right? And it seemed... There were rumors it was 60 as well, okay. but that's so far, I think I think people were mixing up 6,800 models being t- yeah, yeah. samples. Yeah, so I mean... It, it, if it, there isn't like a 60 CU die, yeah, I think the 80 and 84, right? And 40 CU golf. And no, 80. 80, sorry. 80 CU and 40 CU golf and dies. Yeah, that probably is intentional. They, they, they intend to target these two markets. And, yeah. and, you know, I guess the last thing I would say about this is a lot of people go, how can this performance only be this much better? It's like, well, guys, again, like, and as I highlighted in my 6700 XT leak, 
take the 6900 XT and assume the 40 CU model is 60% as strong as the 80 CU model. That still puts it a little below the 2080 Super, guys. <laughs> so it was always optimistic to think it would be above the 2080 Super by a huge margin. And I always thought it would just be right about there. Now it sounds like it might be a few percent below that. Although I'm not entirely sure. It, again, it can fluctuate plus or minus 5%. But you know, that's the point. It's going to yeah. be clocked like 20% faster, but it has a 192-bit bus. But it has infinity cash to make up for that. That's why it's probably 10%-ish or 15 or so more than the 5700 XT. It's all going to come down to price on this one. Yeah. Which is how it always works in the mid-range. Um, outside of that, I don't know. Do you have anything to add about Navi 23 or Navi 24? Not too much, no. I mean, it, it's the value cards that, I don't know, I'm sure they'll all max out 1080p just fine. <laughs> yeah, and I think I think the a lot of people said Navi 23. How can that have 32 compute units when Navi 22 has 40? And I would just go, well, compute units take up very little space. So if you're going to cut, make a card weaker, you might as well save die space by cutting the bus in half and then just removing a few compute units and then you're done. Because that, yeah, like you might as well make it have as many compute units as possible so it at least dominates 1080p performance because that's what these cards are predominantly still used for. Same with Navi24. Yeah, and uh, Infinity Cash, like that, doesn't that take up a lot of die space too? It does. So it's like, if you're going to nerf performance between 22 and 23, you might as well just remove the, whatever it is, right? 50 millimeter squared of infinity cash, a few compute units and give it less RAM. Yeah. Okay. Dead of Night writes in and says, is it possible AMD will come out with a killer monolithic APU for all gamers, for those who don't really need more than eight cores competing directly with Rocket Lake? Um, I mean, I wouldn't rule that out. I mean, I think Saison is something they are just going to bring to the do-it-yourself market. And again, the reason I don't believe they brought Renoir was for two reasons. They already had the 12 nanometer, R, you know, what is it, uh, R5 3000 series APUs. So they already had APUs in the 3000 series. And then at the same time, Renoir only has eight PCIe lanes. So it's there's, there's kind of this awkward platform support with those processors as well compared to the, you know, 3600 and up. So I, I, I think that they were just waiting for Saison or another APU, other, you know, the dozens of other APUs I've heard about that are being tested that will have <laughs> enough PCIe lanes, 4.0 support, and that's when they'll just roll it out into the 5000 series. And if you look at Saison, I think, yeah, I think that's going to perform pretty decently. And I think over time, uh, you know, uh, you'll hear this in upcoming Broken Silicons with some guests, like, I just think the sub $150 market is a hard one to service anymore when wafer costs are above 10,000. Like, like, like seven nanometer wafer costs were double 16 nanometer and five nanometer is going to be like 50% more or something or maybe even more than that than seven. And so, and the high end, that doesn't matter. Who cares what? 100, 150 for the die instead of $100 for the die. People are spending 800 bucks doesn't make a difference. You know, give me more performance. But once you get to the low end, it does matter. And with GDR6 just costing like seven bucks a gigabyte or something, you know. <laughs> yeah, manufacturing. <laughs> There's only is, so cheap you can make it. Yeah, manufacturing is kind of pricing this tier out of existence, essentially. Yeah, and so that, but that will be serviced by APUs, I think by Zen 4 for sure. Oh, yeah, probably. 
Desktop CPUs are a lot like my dog. They run best in the cold. And that goes for all desktop CPUs, whether it's Zen 3, Comet Lake, or Rocket Lake. So if you get one of those shiny new processors, why not get something that cools it to its best ability? And I gotta say the Freezer 50 is definitely hefty enough to be up for the task. Arctic's Freezer 50 is a dual tower design that works on both AMD and Intel systems with fully addressable RGB and maximum performance for a lower price than the competition. Just make sure you have enough room to fit this beast in your system, but as for myself, I can't wait to use it once I can afford a big boy benchmarking station. Go to Arctic's website for more information or use the links below to find out how to buy. Well, it's the holiday season and you know what that that means lots of travel for this holiday season and hopefully for a more open 2021 I bought a studio laptop for mobile editing and of course well it didn't come with an open license of Microsoft Office and those can be very expensive especially for the professional version but luckily I was able to get Microsoft Office professional for a reasonable price from cdkoffers.com go to cdkoffers.com and use the promotional code broken silicon to get 25% off an already cheap list price of Windows 10 professional then all you do is click on your email account go to user center and then my purchase orders to get the code just use this code with a normal download of windows 10 professional from microsoft's website all right links in the description so moving on to story number five amd radeon 6800 xt smart access memory Enabled on Intel Z490 motherboards, quoting from video cards, recently a new BIOS from Asus for their Z490 motherboard has enabled this option. Simply by enabling the feature in the BIOS, Radeon RX 6000 series GPUs should automatically take advantage of the smart access memory feature with Japanese website ASCII decided to give this BIOS a test. AMD never said that this feature would be exclusive to RX 6000 GPUs and RX 5000 processors. However, these product lines are listed as support on the technology page simply because that's what AMD's tested so far. Another reason, obviously, is marketing and sales of their next-gen hardware. So yeah, just kind of skipping down this, the charts are kind of pretty badly labeled and confusing, to be honest. But parsing through them, the synopsis is this. They get up to 10% gains in minimums with the 6800 XT on a Z490 Intel motherboard. It works. And it's interesting, Linus touches on this in a 6900 XT review as well, that, you know, not it's not that hard to enable smart access memory on RDNA 2, but that it might be hard, based on AMD's messaging to them, to enable it for other architectures without kind of rewriting drivers from scratch, and they just don't want to bother with it with the earlier stuff. Mm -hmm. But it seems like if it's already written in the Radeon Catalyst drivers for this series of graphics cards, it's not that hard to enable it in Intel's on Intel motherboards, which is interesting. I, I mean, it's interesting and just obviously from a uh, marketing perspective, it makes sense why AMD emphasized that on the uh, right this uh, on Ryzen five thousand processors because they're kind of sister launches. <laughs> um, I'm surprised how I'm almost surprised how fast. Um, I, we're seeing it on other devices. It's it's good that uh, Intel CPUs can have it enabled, though. And it wasn't hard. Well, so this is the interesting thing. When 
I was in this, and I brought this up about a dozen times now on various videos, you know, live streams and podcasts. Like when I was in an AMD webinar a couple of weeks ago where they were talking about smart access memory, and one of the questions they answered on air was, you know, what about enabling this for other hardware? Should we be surprised if this comes up soon? And of course, this is AMD. So they want you to buy their newest product. So I'm sure he's biased to say they can't just do it easily. But the way he said it is it requires quite a bit of driver work. So seeing them enable it on an Intel motherboard, I'm forced to conclude it's already written into the drivers for the 6000 series. Mm -hmm. So obviously, it's not hard to just enable this on other CPU generations besides Zen 3, (laughs) including Intel. But I guess I still wouldn't be surprised if basically what NVIDIA is working on right now is rewriting their drivers to add this to their products. And then once they do that, and you're probably just going to see motherboard manufacturers update previous Zen products to support it as well. It, it, I think that's what it comes down to. It was easy for them to add it because it's already in the Catalyst drivers, yeah. but it's not easy to add it to other graphics series. So I, in other words, I think we can expect smart access memory support on a lot of different products if it's ARC 6000 series. And eventually NVIDIA is going to do this because they want to be competitive, but that we shouldn't expect last-gen hardware graphics to support it, maybe just last-gen CPU platforms. Um, I mean, yeah, that makes sense. And it's good to see that the innovation they brought is probably going to just, I don't know, maybe uh, in the future, it's just kind of going to be a feature in every new product release. I expect it will be. It's just, again, it's kind of one of those funny things, though, where literally the 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 core of what this is, is um, basically just allowing them to access more of the RAM on the graphics card at once through the PCIe, yeah. right? And that's what AMD was talking about in the webinar. Like, once we're getting to 16 gigabyte cards, like, I forgot what it was limited to before. I think it was 256 megabytes. Like, that's a problem when you're like, one thirty second of the card is being accessed <laughs> at once. There's no reason for this. It's arbitrary. It rem- it's almost like, why didn't they do this sooner? And it reminds me of uh, like FreeSync and G-Sync where NVIDIA added G-Sync first and that forced AMD to respond and it you know created some competition there. But at the end of the day, that was already enabled as a power-saving feature in laptop- some laptop screens. And there was no reason they hadn't enabled it like a decade sooner. It's, it's kind of funny that it just took one of them doing it. I mean, yeah, that is funny how whenever a new feature gets introduced by one of the companies, the other one is kind of like within a year immediately able to respond most of the time. It just shows uh, that I think a lot of it is um, people just not thinking about how you can do it. Yeah. And and it bothers me a little because of all of this haggling over die sizes and like, look how big this die is on the newest node. And it's like, did we think of just accessing all of the RAM at once instead of using basically a legacy system from decades ago. <laughs> Same thing with G-Sync and FreeSync. You know, oh, got to keep your minimums above 60 frames. It's like, well, yeah, or we could just, why are we drawing frames in screen tearing? Why are we doing this? <laughs> I don't know, Tom. Stu writes in and says, regarding the Zen 4 launch, how much specialized processing hardware do you think we'll see from AMD? Intel has been using their integrated graphics for hardware-accelerated encoding and decoding for a while, and now Intel and Apple both seem to be adding more hardware-based AI coding and emulation on die. I imagine the multiple die design AMD has been using would make it, quote-unquote, easier to add 
on hardware-based capabilities. Not that it's ever easy, but you seem underwhelmed by their decisions thus far. Yeah, I think I've said that I didn't really expect Zen 3 to reinvent the wheel. At most, we'd see a specialized version of it with like more threads per core, but I never really thought they'd add dedicated extra hardware in the IO die till Zen 4. Um, or not whether on the IO die or as another chip. Um, having said that, it doesn't sound like Zen 4 is going to do that that much yet, but I wouldn't rule it out. And if I guess what I would say is if they don't add these, you know, because we've already discussed in the last, you know, news broken Silicon, Apple had all of these specialized components of the M1 chip for doing specific tasks. If AMD doesn't do this in Zen 4, yeah, I will be underwhelmed. I will go, why aren't you doing this? You have, we don't need 32 cores. We need, well, I don't think we need, we would like <laughs> 16 cores and then also a dedicated, different dedicated encoders and, you know, cores for doing specific tasks. We really don't need 32 cores. We need specialized cores now. I do think that is where the market is going to have to go eventually just because of like, I don't know, physics. <laughs> well, yeah, and, it, and it'd be a more fit. I mean, there's always, you can always try to brute force things, but I think it's more efficient to just add dedicated hardware at a certain point. Yeah. And I mean, we're seeing that with the consoles. So there that obviously already exists. We're seeing that with Apple. So I think it's just a matter of time where we'll s- start seeing it with in uh, PCs as well. I mean, maybe it'll be Zen 4. Hopefully it's sooner rather than later. Um, I just wonder if uh, Windows being a more open platform than the other ones I, I mentioned uh, has some role to play and why it wouldn't be adopted as fast. Well, and I would also highlight this. This was something people brought up to me about like Zen 2. Like, oh, but you know, it is nice that Intel comes with integrated graphics. Why doesn't AMD put on integrated graphics for encoding? And it's like, again, guys, cores take up a very small amount of space. I believe each CCX in Zen 2 is 16 millimeters squared. So that's a quad core takes up 16 millimeters squared. It's either that or basically four compute units. Yeah, they, that's about the same space. So interesting. Uh, I think actually four compute units would take up a little more room than that. So from AMD's perspective, it's like, mm, well, for encoding, we're just going to give you 16 cores because we think that's the best way to use the die space right now. And I think you saw Intel keep stapling on cores to the point that at first, Skylake had like half of its, or, you know, Broadwell, I think most of its, die was integrated graphics and that's awkward and then you saw comet lake where they're just using the same skylake integrated graphics and now the hardware acceleration isn't as big as it could be anymore because it's very lopsided so i think amd is just planning to add it when they think it makes sense but i will think it makes sense by zen 4 in my humble opinion (laughs) i guess that's how i would put it right yeah speaking of dedicated cores that compete with Apple. Story number six. (laughs) AMD rumored to have a prototype Apple M1 competitor in the works, and quoting from Notebook Check, known leaker Mori QHD has tweeted that AMD has an M1 competitor prototype already in the works. He says that the company is developing two versions of the chip, one with integrated RAM and one without. Apparently, the prototype is almost ready, whatever that means. No other information is available. So, I don't know, what, what, what are your thoughts on seeing this pop up? It's interesting that uh, this really ultra-low power, like, I think less than 10 watts, might, come, might start making an appearance if Apple and AMD are both introducing products at that 
price point. I mean, not price point, at that level of performance and power usage. And I'm, based on what I saw, at least from when I'm surprised that there's AMD is already has a competitor, assuming that means it's equally performant to M1. Which is what I want to address, right? I've seen a lot of people ask me online recently. Oh, I've seen two things. I've seen number one stories like AMD's already making an Apple M1 killer, which I would say, I think it's premature to say they're going to kill it. And (laughs) number two, I think it's a little premature to ask me to have an opinion on something that doesn't even have prototypes done. (laughs) Right? Yes. What I would say is I wouldn't place bets on any killers. Uh, Look, AMD is has some great engineers. They've made some spectacular products in the past four years. So to rule out AMD beating the M1 is silly. You shouldn't rule out anything. This is a competent company that makes great products now. Having said that, Apple's a $2 trillion company that's not juggling nearly all of these other products that AMD has. Apple needs their M1 to be the best. So they put a lot of that money and manpower into that being good because it had to be and i suspect they will continue to with the successive things <laughs> they launch which is just a different type of competitive advantage compared to amd juggling all different types of larger high performance graphics processors consoles cpus apple just makes one thing and needs to make it perfect and they have more money than amd so i wouldn't assume it's going to be an apple killer yeah because when you go from competitor to killer you're you're making a lot of assumptions. Yeah. Those aren't the same thing. To me, that sounds like they're going for a, they have a, I don't know if, if you would call this ultra low power, a low power integrated uh, APU though. You know, yeah. a low power APU. That's what that, that says to me. Yeah, we don't know how good it will be in comparison yet, but it makes sense they're working on it, but I wouldn't place any bets on a $2 trillion company that has less products <laughs> it's managing not staying ahead. Uh, Crescent yeah. Hunter writes in and says, I see a lot of people, including you, saying that Apple's this is Apple's first foray into a CPU segment and that the second gen will be much, much better, and I doubt this assumption. So I'm going to have to cut you off there, Crescent Hunter. I never said their second one will be amazing, ever. What I said is that Apple doesn't see their first generation as a ARM architecture. They see it as ARM-based and the first generation of their Apple architecture. And they're more than willing to grow out of an ARM-based architecture over time. That This is just their first gen of Apple, and it's based on ARM. The jury's still out, though. I never said that this will continue to innovate at a great pace. I'm not sure it will. But let me continue your thoughts here. If anything, I'd say that the second gen will show far fewer improvements than this generation did compared to Intel. This generation, the concept of Apple Silicon laptops has been in development probably since 2016. It has been. And maybe even before that, as this was the time Intel's 10 nanometer was clearly not going to happen. They've been working on the chip for years, far longer than AMD or Intel. Or in the future, they'll spend on the chip, and I don't think they'll show many improvements. They also shouldn't be given a pass for being first-gen. Well, so I wouldn't be so sure of that either, though. Again, I'm not saying I'm sure Apple's next generation will be as impressive as this one, relatively speaking. But I would argue this one is kind of comparable to RDNA 1, and I'd say RDNA 2 is more impressive than RDNA 1. Right? RDNA 1 was their first bridge into a new non-GCN architecture. So while they put all this time into it, yeah, it's the first one. 
But you've got to assume the second gen, there's a lot of tweaks they can make. I mean, heck, even bad architectures like Bulldozer, the second generation made huge leaps over the first one because they had all these weaknesses to fix. And I would assume that's it's been the same of RDNA 2. I assume that's going to be true of, you know, the M2 or whatever. Um, I, the one thing I would say to that is I, I think he, there's something correct here in this statement by like they've been developing this for years. A- Apple only puts out uh, products that it wants to put out, not that it needs to put out. AMD needs to put out products. So if at mm. the M1 wasn't mature enough for them to put it on their devices, well, they would probably just secure another contract with Intel. And which they may have another year. Yeah. Yeah. They, exactly. the, I mean, famously, like there's been products that they said it was the second generation. They said there was an entire generation of iPhones they never released because, well, they discovered they get scratched in your pocket. They discovered that it breaks too easily. They just, you know, like they had to figure out Gorilla Grass. The, the, the first generation was scrapped after years of working yeah. on it because it wasn't ready. Yeah, they've probably been working on it since 2016. They may have scrapped the 2018 generation, man. Yeah, and, and I think that's where the truth comes in. Like this is this is the first the M1 is the first uh, Apple SoC that Apple wants you to see. It's not the first Apple SoC. <laughs> so maybe I, I wouldn't be surprised if he were he's partially correct that maybe there won't be as many innovations because they've gotten the the kinks out. I guess. But then again, they also, I'm assuming, wouldn't have uh, manufactured its the M1 predecessors on like a super large scale. Yeah, and I guess here's what I'll say. What we can say now, right now, is the M1 is impressive. That's it. I don't think, and I'm not, drawing any conclusions about the next generation. Aside from, they're a $2 trillion company. So (laughs) I would guess they're going to, they well they've certainly been successful in the past and they're going to have the backing to make another impressive generation but i'm not saying they will we'll have to find out and yeah. maybe we'll find out some hints of what it is in this next story <laughs> story number 7 apple reportedly working on a 32 core processor for high end macs so this comes from bloomberg and the verge but i'll just say right at the top i have an independent source verifying most of this so it's not I was, hearsay. I was going to make a snide remark about Bloomberg because Bloomberg does like being wrong. I made snide remarks about them to one of my sources. And he okay. was like, well, this one's true. Um, <laughs> so, and this comes from Bloomberg. A new half-size Mac Pro is planned for launch by 2022. Apple is working on a new ARM-based processor with as many as 32 high-performance CPU cores that could appear in a Mac in late 2021. According to a new report, The processor could also appear in a new half-sized Mac Pro in 2022. Alongside it, the company is also reportedly developing CPU designs with up to 16 high-performance cores and four power-efficient cores, which are designed for new versions of the MacBook Pro and iMac. The new processors could arrive as early as spring 2021. Future Apple Silicon designs could also feature GPUs with up to 128 cores. So what I independently verified was this. Right now, coming sooner rather than later, is a 64-core CPU. The M1 had eight cores for the Mac Pro. And then a 64-core GPU. There are eight, up to eight, in the M1 design. And I'm told that, yes, it is a high-end GPU. 
I asked, what does high end mean? I, around a 3080. And they said, confirmed. That is what they're saying around a 3080 performance. So I can't say it's 100% verified by multiple sources, but one of my best ones verifies. Yeah, around 3080 performance, 64 cores. This should go into the Mac Pro next year. Now, the 128 core one, not anytime soon. I think what this shows is that Apple has seems to have full intention of doing this. their ecosystem completely their own. Yeah. And so, again, I can't say how powerful or how successful these will be once scaled up, but I can tell yeah. you they're a true $2 trillion company, and my own sources are verifying that they're working on a 64-core. And that 8-core was really powerful for 8-cores, and they are targeting at least 3080 performance. So we'll see how much energy this uses. It could be pretty mind-blowing. Yeah, I mean, I'm excited to see where this goes. That it, <laughs> Apple seems to be coming and swinging with uh, semiconductors, uh, with uh, CPUs and GPUs, though. And I mean, I guess I'll say this. I have no intention of buying any of these Apple products, maybe ever. <laughs> so it's probably not like something not. I'm excited for because I'm going to get it. I'm just being honest. I'm being honest. I'm probably not going to get it. But this will bring competition to AMD, NVIDIA, and Intel. It will. It is. If they don't make products good enough to go in MacBooks, then that's sales they've lost. So they are competing with what Apple's making in-house. And at the same time, Windows laptops are competing with MacBooks. And while I have no intention of getting any of these Apple products for software reasons, you know, at the same time, there's a lot of people where if Apple actually successfully does make something stronger than what AMD, NVIDIA, and Intel are making, there will be people that choose Macs instead. This is competition, indirectly, but almost kind of actually directly against Intel, AMD, and NVIDIA, and more competition is good. That's why I'm excited about seeing this stuff, because it is kind of a third, or arguably fourth, entrant into the GPU race, and a third entrant, in, you know, or whatever, into the CPU race, because they are actually targeting consumer product consumers with their products unlike other arm server products and that's direct competition against high performance amd and intel yeah and the one thing i would say is uh apple is far more insular than or uh, the windows and uh products and apple products are somewhat insulated from each other but they do they they do talk a little bit so this is going to influence the Windows or PC in some way. And if eventually, it, it, assuming that uh, Apple's products kept getting better at like a rate that they're currently showing they could be, uh, Apple could begin to look like a more attractive prospect for some people. Right. Maybe not me in the short term, but this will pull people away from buying Windows laptops with AMD and Intel if it's good yeah. enough. And that is competition for AMD and Intel. Yeah. All right. Let us move on to story number eight. Intel Core i9-11900K Rocket Lake, 14 nanometer flagship CPU spotted in ashes of the singularity, quoting from WCCF Tech. On December 3rd, the i9-11900K Rocket Lake S desktop flagship CPU was spotted with eight cores and 3.5 gigahertz base clocks, still losing to the 5950X. 
We can say for sure if these are early ES variants of the same chip or different chips altogether, since the Core i9 and Core i7 SKUs are, as of now, expected to be practically identical, with the main difference being clock speed, the earlier 3.4 GHz SKU could have been the i7-11-700K model, while the Core i9 model features a higher base clock. The boost clocks for the previous model was 5 GHz, so we can expect 3.5 base to support higher boost clocks as well, hopefully. And all I can say about this is, you know, I've done multiple videos on Rocket Lake. Uh, one of the things I touched on was they were somewhat considering actually doing a 12-thread 8-core i7, <laughs> which, again, for those who go, what do you mean? How is that possible? In Comet Lake, you can disable hyper-threading per core now. So they could have just arbitrarily segmented the i7 to be 8 cores, 12 threads, with only half the cores having hyper-threading. Almost taking a big little approach if you think about it. Um, yeah, kind of. And so it was either that, though, or two other options. Just call the top 8 core an i7 and not have an i9 in the lineup, which is what I would prefer, because i9 means nothing if it can be any core count in any performance level. or they would just do this. The i9 and the i7 are both 8 cores and 16 threads. Kind of like the i9, what is it, uh, 10900K and the i9 850K, except now they're going to call it an i7. Which is what I think, it, it, which I did speak to a source about this once this article came out, and he said, yeah, most likely they're just going to, the i7 and the i9 are the same core counts, but one boost higher. I, I, I don't know what to say. It looks really dumb. I'm curious. What does i9 is this, mean? Is is and is this going to lose to the 10900K multi-threaded and multi-threaded tasks? Too? I, uh, one of my Intel sources says it will probably slightly lose in multi-threading to the 10900K. Yeah, probably it's, slightly. That, that's uh, it's not like a bulldozer level embarrassing, but it's kind of it's kind of an embarrassing lineup. Then I don't know. I would agree. <laughs> you know, I mean, at the end of the day, I don't know. The more we hear about Rocket Lake, the less impressive it is versus Zen 3. Um, except the one thing I could see happening is this. Kind of like what we're seeing with the 3090 and the 6900 XT. Those products exist to milk the people with money. And that's really it. That's what yeah. the i9-11900K will be. Milking the people who will spend Hundreds of dollars for one percent performance. I guess I don't know. Um, yeah. And at the which is kind of what this could be, right? It could be like literally like a five percent difference at most. Um, but if the i seven eleven seven hundred K is below four hundred, and it does match the fifty eight hundred X, it could be interesting. I will have to admit that. Yeah, um, yeah. If it launched for under four hundred, sure. And it managed to game better. But again, I, I really can't see these gaming more than like 10 to 15% better than Comet, like at most. It would not surprise me if they only game like 8% better. So it's it's basically going to de facto tie the 5800X. And the 5800X is 450 for an 8-core. So I'm guessing the i9 is going to be about the same performance for more money and less efficient, way less, way, way, way less efficiency. Uh, and then the i7 will hopefully at least be a decently less money for the same performance, which could be somewhat interesting when you consider that uh, now they'll have PCIe 4.0 support and basically platform parity. Although some people I've talked to in the motherboard space say it's overall inferior 
Like that it mm. might, I forgot what it was, that it might not support MVME drives at 4.0, that it might just be PCIe drives. So at that point, it's still, I'm going to go, I'm not, not recommending it if that's true. <laughs> that's what I'm hearing, guys. I mean, yeah, that's not good. Um, something about not being able to validate something in time for the platform. Uh, I mean, I, 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 I don't think Intel has anything interesting until Alder Lake. And realistically, maybe even after Alder Lake is what's truly going to be interesting. Alder Lake will be interesting. Good. That's up in the air. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so Chagaholic writes in and says, Hi, Tom and Dan. This holiday season, we've seen a lot of Intel CPUs go on sale relative to both AMD and Intel in the past. I know a lot of this has to do with lack of supply on AMD's part, but is Intel finally admitting they need to lower prices? Or is this retailers clearing stock of Intel since very few people seem to want them? I think it's probably mostly that. I think everyone makes the like really the time to buy AMD CPUs price performance wise was last year. And people yeah. hear a year of tech channels saying buy AMD, buy AMD. And so now they're buying them, even though sometimes now Intel's better price performance. And I just think that's what it is. You know, people buying less Intel because they're not the hot thing anymore. And so retailers are lowering prices to get rid of inventory, especially when they know Rocket Lake's coming. And they know that AMD prices could stabilize. That This is the time to push those Intel products. Yeah. All right. Story number nine. Intel mm -hmm. Ice Lake SP Xeon CPU with 36 cores and 72 threads at 3.6 gigahertz leaks out. Benchmarked on a dual socket server supporting sporting 72 cores total. And this is from WCCF Tech, a Intel third gen Xeon processor, which is part of the Ice Lake SP family of 10 nanometer server chips, has been spotted. Leaked in Geekbench and spotted by Twitter fellow Leakbench, the chip. Okay, what's going on? I maybe, maybe I'm to blame by just posting this here. WCCF Tech, come on. All right, I'm done reading this. This is, I didn't realize how broken the English was on this article. <laughs> There's a 36 core Ice Lake, guys. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what was the what was the rumor? Twenty it was twenty-eight cores, right? Well, they confirmed twenty-eight cores, but I have been leaking for a year that they had thirty-eight and forty core dies in testing, and they always intended to launch a thirty-six core. So this pretty much proves my leak of the thirty-six core is correct, despite a lot of people being doubtful after months of them not showing it. So that's really what there is to say about this. Just kind of, well, there it is, guys. See, there is a 36 core ice like it is launching. It is real. 10 nanometer is working better than it used to. I mean, yeah, that's good for us in the future. I mean, we're not going to be buying the 36 core, but no, and I, and I don't really think this is coming to consumers, which is, again, for me, disappointing. I was really, you know, when I heard they might have an HEDT ice lake lineup, I was like, well, that'd be really cool if they could have like, you know, even if it's the same price or a little more. Having competition with 32 core and below Threadrippers prevents AMD from charging whatever they want for the entire lineup. And But again, I don't think they're launching this to HEDT, so who knows what they will charge for Milan Threadripper. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess we'll see. Hopefully the unfortunate, not a ton. Yeah, the unfortunate answer is whatever they want. Yeah, I, yeah, I mean, if you need that product, you need that product, and if AMD is the only person you can get it from, you don't have many choices. So. I would say Intel cannot bring Sapphire Rapids HEDT soon enough. Yeah. All right. So those are the major stories of the past couple of weeks that we felt were worth covering for gaming hardware. 
been very console heavy the past couple of weeks, so kind of focus more on the uh, computer side itself. But anyway, let's get to the final reader mails. Connor writes in and says, Hey, Tom, listening to your NX Gamer talk, I was wondering how well will the consoles age compared to RDNA cards when they benefit from improved drivers? Could we see the PS5 or Xbox getting a 10% improvement like we see for cards like a, if it was a 5700 XT? Also, offhand, do you know if the PS5 and Xbox One benefited from this? Yes, I do know they did. And I do know the PS4 and PS5 allow you to basically write to the metal. Whereas, honestly, the way it's described to me by developers, the Xbox isn't written to the metal. Everyone keeps talking about the benefits of having to write a game for DirectX 12, and then it works on the Xbox and the PC. But that means basically the Xbox is just a PC without enough RAM, you know? And so (laughs) it's having performance issues, guys. In fact, what I'm told is they designed the game for PC on DirectX 12, and then they have to semi-port it anyways because they have to do all of this memory management on the Xbox, and there's extra work still because of that. It makes it easier, and it makes backwards and forwards compatibility with Xbox games possible and much easier to do, but there are downsides to that. And again, that is to say, yeah, the PS5 is getting some pretty obvious, like if you look at dynamic resolutions, memory benefits from being closer to the metal, and the Xbox just isn't getting those, at least not as many of them. Yeah, and then I think as like what he's seeing as far as this being a newer architecture, I don't know. Yeah, well, there's probably going to be some small benefit to that, though, too. But I don't know. I mean, yeah, and and again, it's two things. It's, yes, they're going to optimize really hard for RDNA 2, and they will age well because of that relative to RDNA 1, I think. Having said that, RDNA 1 will probably get half of the benefits of those optimizations anyways. RDNA 1's a bridge architecture between yeah. GCN and RDNA 2. I don't expect it to age badly. I just expect RDNA 2 to age well. Yeah. JBear98 writes in and says, is the Xbox dev kit argument real or it's not that big of a difference? So I guess I already just touched on it. I'm not sure the dev kit argument, but yeah, the early Xbox dev kits didn't had more bugs and that was a problem. I don't think it's like, oh, so they're just magically going to gain more performance, but it is a reason for some of the early problems based on what I know, yeah. And if that's the reason for some of the early problems, some of the performance issues will get ameliorated on the Xbox Series X. I don't think that means it's going to get, I don't know, like how some people think it's magically going <laughs> it to was never stronger percent than the PS5, strong. though. Yeah, I don't think it's magically going to start performing 30% better than the PS5 because that's not how hardware works. Because there's no numbers to support that. People are obsessing yeah. about teraflops. Teraflops is not the best measure of gaming performance. In fact, the PS5 has a higher pixel fill rate than the Xbox, guys. Yeah, the numbers are always <laughs> there to suggest that it might not perform as well. Um, so, I mean, I guess that's all there. And again, if you look at the patches, they've already patched Assassin's Creed Valhalla, and their solution was lowering the resolution of the Xbox. <laughs> so, JBear98 writes in, oh, I guess again, and notice I gave him two here. Let's put our Mark Cerny hat on and think about what could be next. Next gen consoles what do you think will be the next step on consoles and the next step after that seeing as gpus isn't everything these days i wonder what could possibly be holding back consoles if they keep it the same maybe some change in cash that literally makes performance a lot better kind of like infinity cash but the next iteration of it adding more ram ssd speeds what do you think i mean dan like should i i mean let me ask you like 
Right now, I think this is different than last gen. They're having zero issues running locked 60 frames at launch. And while they're not running all games in 4K, the dynamic resolution feature within TAA injection into the final image, it looks pretty goddamn sharp. I can't see people complaining that much, at least not with the Series X and the PS5. The Series S is already running games in 720p. So no, I do not think before Teraflop, Series S will age well. It only has 10 gigabytes of RAM. But I do think the Series X and the PS5, I just can't see people complaining, ah, the dynamic resolution's below 1440p sometimes. I just think that's different than last-gen consoles where at launch there was already performance to be desired. I really think people on big-screen TVs are going to be pretty happy with this level of performance all-gen. So so what do you think's next, then? I'm not really quite sure anymore. I I think um, more specialized chips in the console. Like, the PS5 already has several pieces of, like, Dedicated it has dedicated hardware yeah, for cache scrubbers, multiple yeah. IO, multiple, um, yeah, different IO controllers for different parts of the IO, not just one for decompression. There's a lot in there. Yeah. So I think I, I could see SSD speeds, uh, becoming more, even more important. Like, I don't know, imagine an SSD that's four times faster than the PS5's SSD or something like that. Then yeah. you truly do just. You, I mean, that you just have like DDR3 RAM at that point at, for your storage. DDR, yeah, well, no, like DDR4. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, once you get there, uh, you can do a ton of insane stuff without worrying about teraflops at all or worrying about GPU performance. Uh, so I think that and like dedicated hardware meant to do a, one specific task is what we're going to see more of. Yeah, I think this is the first generation where you can truly say they can pretty much make any game they want, bar none. You could you could have made that argument last gen, but it's like, I don't know, you could have also made that argument with the 360. You could make almost yeah. any game on the Xbox 360. It's just, can you imagine how low resolution or how horrible the textures would have to be for certain types of open world games? I mean, my God. I can't wait to see how Cyberpunk looks on the original Xbox One, by the way. <laughs> but, well, and I want... I, and I will have to say, and this this is even just from the PS4 Pro, a way I don't think you could really make the same game, quote unquote, is you really couldn't have acting in, in video games as good as it is until we had the PS4, even arguably the Pro. Yeah, and the Xbox or, One or, X. Or the Xbox One X, yeah. Where, like playing The Last of Us 2, where the facial animations just look like real facial animations. Even in that, game. Yeah, like that's that's a big deal. Yeah, and I guess so, you know, I mean, let's not worry about next, next gen. Who knows what the PS7 could be? But if we think about what the next consoles could be capable of, which I think is an interesting discussion simply because we're also basically talking about um, what would probably be in gaming PCs at the same time as well, hopefully, or at least following those console launches. Um, I think obviously you're going to have more RAM. You know, so let's let's say they it's even comes out like 2025. Okay. So by then I would expect you know 64 gigabytes of RAM at least. You know. I hope, yeah. You know, and and I think let's not worry about teraflops or ROPs, pixels, all that stuff. I think you're gonna get a graphics card. I mean, think about it. 2022, early 2022 at least, I think we'll have RDNA three. So 2023. Probably late 2023, then RDNA 4, and then by 2025, RDNA 5. By then, I think, yeah, whatever is in the consoles now, they'll be able to have something four to six times stronger graphically, you know? Yeah. 
And so, yeah, with that in mind, 4K certainly isn't an issue. You'll probably have dynamic 4K to 8K resolution to the point that it is capable of photorealistic pixel counts. That would allow you to see things in the distance you can't see at lower resolutions. Even though you can't tell it's not sharp, trust me, I've looked at some high, ultra high, like 16K footage shot on an 8 and then viewed on an 8K screen. Like one thing I remember watching was like it was looking at the favelas in Rio in 8K. You could see people walking around on their balconies in this tiny little part of the screen and make out what they're doing. Like you people, I think, forget how good the human eye is that you can look across a mountain range, see someone camping and kind of make out what they're doing if you squint. I think that type of a thing, although how many games will that actually add in the gameplay? Probably not most, but some. So that's the type of things they'll probably be capable of. And again, it's like, yep, probably four to six times the graphics performance, 64 gigabytes of RAM. But what I'd really be curious about is how much of the die space they choose to use for graphics performance and how much of the die space they use for cache. Because as we move to five nanometer, you're not really doubling the size, but I would say going to three nanometer, you do quadruple it. Um, if it's 50, 1.5 times 1.5, you're kind of getting close to 4X. And so, yeah, if we're on, so five nanometer next year, three nanometer a year and a half after that, maybe we'll be on two nanometer by the time these consoles launch. And you could consider, okay, so what, four or five times the die space to work with? Maybe they'll decide to only quadruple graphics performance because that's all they need. Add a few more cores for better AI but then also put a massive amount of cash so you can load a portion of the game just in cash. And then you truly do have, you know, the ability to do anything in any game, no matter what. And that would make development even easier again. Yeah. And I think saying like a GPU that's not uh, astronomically stronger than what's in the current ones. Like, I, I, I just think there's a good chance that based on, depending on where, uh pc hardware goes in the next five or six years because that's the time scale we're talking about like that might not be as important so maybe four times or three times better is all you really need right and and what they could decide to do like again the current gen at least i know the ps4 pro and ps5 have like dedicated checkerboarding in the silicon to do it better than otherwise like with that mentality it wouldn't surprise me if they took four to six times the die space. And they're like, we're only going to add four times the performance of the graphics, but we're going to add dedicated, like, you know, hardware for cleaning up the final image anyway. So we don't really need Mm -hmm. it. We're going to have a dedicating ray tracing ASIC. We're going to have a, and then we're just going to add a ton of cash so that you don't, because, you know, that's the end goal of all of this gaming hardware, all programming, put it all in cash. <laughs> That's the <laughs> end goal. Roger Kadori talked about this last year in that Hot Wings presentation at Hot Chips behind closed doors. You know, and and I've heard programmers say that too. Like fundamentally at the end of the day, what we really want is a terabyte of cash. I don't think they can do that in the next gen consoles, but it would be interesting how close they could get. Yeah, I mean, it, maybe they can't get everything in the cash, but maybe they can get all of the RAM in the cash or something. <laughs> Or like what they could do is have like a gigabyte of cache or something and then have yeah. 128 gigabytes of RAM. And maybe that's not enough to hold the whole game, but it's certainly enough to hold anything you'll be doing at one moment in the game. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I, I think that should be the end goal of like a PS6 or shall we say the 2025 model of the Series X. Yes. 
Crescent Hunter 52 writes in and says, have you heard anything about Halo Infinite? System requirements, story details, anything, really? Honestly, not really. Uh, I've heard mixed things, uh, I've, but I've heard that they're, they are fixing it and taking it seriously. I think that's like common sense stuff. Like, of course they are. This is their flagship series. It needs to be good. So I would say the, peop, the, the, the PlayStation fanboys hating on it being a good game. I wouldn't say that. It could be a great game, and I hope it is. I mean, we like the first two Halos, so I hope there's another good Halo. Yeah, and I mean, I, I know, like, I, I can't remember the guy's name, but I, I think they're bringing, like, the original Halo 2 Halo 2 director or writer back for this one. Like, I think they rehired him. So I think there's some pretty massive changes they're making to the game. They're not putting... I don't think they're just putting a fresh coat of paint on the game. I think they're fundamentally redesigning it. Which, right. And I would say that on that note, I just, when I saw they delayed it, people were like, so now it's January? And I'm like, I doubt it. I think this is a late 2021 game and it could even slip to 2022. That part's my speculation. But when I saw what I saw in that Halo Infinite gameplay and then they delayed it, I'm like, that doesn't need a coat of paint. That needs fundamental restructuring of half of how the game is because whether people like it or not, the initial conception of Halo Infinite was like a Battle Royale open world game. And (laughs) they clearly decided Battle Royale is a waste of time and just shifted into an open world Halo game. And then that didn't work out. So they're bringing in the guy from Halo 2 to fix it. So I think this is more than just a fresh coat of paint. I, I think this is, they needed to, and again, I've talked about this before. There's been other games this has happened to. I believe Uncharted 4 was one of them where they were like, they basically had to add two more years of development because it just wasn't what it needed to be and they needed to redo half of it. Um, I mean, yeah, that happens. And another example of it is, a, a less successful example of that is um, oh, Mass Effect Andromeda. <laughs> Where, where they probably should have taken more time instead of rushing it to the finish line, but that's what EA always seems to decide to do. But yeah, I'm I'm glad it looks like they're taking the time to redo the game the way it should be. It, and and that's all I can say. For uh, most of what I just said was speculation, to be clear. But I have heard that they're taking it seriously. And that people playing or working on some of the newer iterations of it are like, no, it is. It's going to be a lot better. Hey, Tom here jumping in again with an update from after the podcast recording. And that is to say that, yeah, basically right when we got done recording the podcast, articles started popping up confirming Halo Infinite's releasing fall 2021. So... There you go. I mean, obviously, you could say that I could have added this after we discussed it, but that tells you I do know how the development's going when I tell you it's definitely not coming out earlier mid-next year. And I, and I stand by, it wouldn't surprise me if it slipped to 2022, although I got to say, I would assume Xbox is going to put all effort into making sure it comes out fall 2021 and not 2022 because they just really need a exclusive next year. They need it, you know. Um, especially based on what I know from what's coming from Sony that year. Uh, So yeah, there you go. Halo Infinite coming out a full year after the originally planned launch date, which I say is a good thing. I have no issues finding games to play now. I want games to release when they are finished, which brings me to actually something else. Later in this podcast, you'll hear us talk about Cyberpunk. 
And, you know, I, I noticed after recording this that reviews were popping up for Cyberpunk. And so just let me add a little bit more there before you hear me and Dan's discussion. And that's that based on what I'm seeing, Cyberpunk actually does interest me more than I thought it would. Uh, specifically because of what I've heard about how the side missions are so open and contribute to a main mission with very, very, very many different endings. Of course, we'll all have to see firsthand testimonials from more of the people I follow closely. Sometimes I'm a little concerned that mainstream game reviewers are too easily impressed by very subtle changes to the ending. But at the very least, it sounds like a very open game that lets you do whatever you want. And yeah, that sounds like a great game to me. However, it looks insanely buggy to the point that no one's played the last-gen versions and they won't let you show captured footage in reviews. Uh, So I'm not getting Cyberpunk at launch, though. Uh, I'm just being honest. I have plenty of games to play right now. And, you know, uh, having a game that's so buggy, every single review mentions it. The IGN review saying they literally had a glitch every hour of gameplay as far as they could tell. Game-breaking glitches where they had to restart missions. That, that for me, means, you, you know what, you guys? Finish the game, then release it. I'm not looking for games to play. There's so many games to play. I have a backlog of dozens of games. And so, I don't know. That's all I got to say is that whatever you hear me and Dan say, and I've talked to Dan about this last night too, he agrees, this looks like a game we're definitely getting, but it looks like a game we're definitely getting once it's finished. And uh, there's just a part of me that can't buy something with this type of anti-consumer not allowing you to show captured footage. I mean, the amount of shit some other games got this year for trying to control the review day narrative, and this is (laughs) this crazy egregious. If you won't let reviewers show footage that they've captured what are you hiding so i don't know looks like a great game but one that i will wait to be patched for months before i get right back to the show but uh anyways dazem8 writes in and says hey tom just wanted to ask you with all your contacts which again let's be clear guys i don't know everyone and i don't always know everything i basically run with what i well i mean honestly sometimes when it comes to leaks it's what thread am i pulling on right now and so there's a certain degree of me asking people things. But a lot of it is just, what do I have access to now and decided to run with? Because I don't have time to handle everything at once. I can't know everything going on. So, But he asks, especially at, say, EA and in particular, DICE, I'm a Battlefield fan also. And I'm just curious if you've heard anything or asked around about the next upcoming game. And if not, is it possible to try to reach out and probably find some more info? I mean, all I know is that I believe Battlefield 6 is a modern one built from the ground up for next-gen hardware, and I would expect it to target near photorealism. Yeah, and I don't know. that. So they took up, they're probably going to take a one year longer than average uh, gap between games because they've been doing two years now, a two-year cycle usually. But I don't know. I guess, I think Battlefield 5 is kind of considered more of a failure than their other games, right? So They consider it to be. They wanted it to be this giant thing, and I think some of it was done well. The marketing, at least initially, was done horribly, and I really actually think the the marketing was a large part of its not doing as well as they were hoping it would. I mean, again, it's like it sold millions of copies, like 10 million or I don't know, right? It's sold, it's, it's sold, it's made its money back easily. Yeah, it didn't lose money. We buy it still, and there's people online playing it. It's fine. But it, it, it's not what they wanted. Yeah, so they needed to take another year to regroup and reassess, I guess. Well, and, you know, I think they feel extra bad because, what, they go from 
Battlefield World War II to Battlefield 2 to Battlefield 3 to Battlefield 4, all of these modern games, then Battlefield 1, and that's a runaway success, their first World War I game. One of the most successful ones in their history, if not the most. Like You look it up, tens of millions of copies. So Battlefield 1's a resounding really success, well, yeah. even though I know some people didn't like it. Um, it Whether you like it or not, it did better than I 4 did. It did better than 3, even, I think. Um, and this was the first time they were going back to their roots, World War II, and it was the worst one in the past. Or at the very least, it did the work. You know, plenty of people like Battlefield Five, but I guess it, at least commercially, did not do as well as their previous few. So they feel like they really effed up something. And I think their mindset right now is, well, we are always going to go to modern after World War II. We cannot F this up. And so, and yeah. uh, in fact, you know, th- there's been public stories about this you know, if you go Google it, guys, that the reason they, I think they were planning to do like a Russian front um, DLC and they canceled it. And they canceled everything after basically the American-Japanese expansion pack. And they even reduced the size of the Japanese-American expansion pack, even though that one added plenty of maps and weapons. Um, because they said, you know what? We're going to get this out. It's We're going to make sure it's good. And then we're done so that we can have another year of just focusing on Battlefield Six. So that's what's going on right now. That's they're taking it very seriously. Yeah, and I think part of what happened with Dice is I I think they might have to have had too much on their platter. Like I I joke about this with Tom. Like um, it seems like Dice is the company that EA needs to do everything while Bioware like I don't know fucks off. And well, Bioware just Andromeda. fucks up every series in the past. Yeah, and then Dice—they they're supposed to make Battlefield, Battlefront, uh, randomly Mirror's Edge somewhere in there, and be their the uh, yeah engine. Their entire every EA product is based off of. I mean, like it would be like like Gorilla in Sony's studios makes the game engine for a lot of their games and makes Killzone and Horizon. It would be like if they were like, by the way, also make Mirror's Edge and Battlefront and be tech support for all of our studios. And I just think DICE is asked to do too much. Now, they're a bigger team than Gorilla. They're insanely huge now. But yeah. at a certain point, there's only so many things you can juggle and do it well. And I think you look at some of the games they release and they were half-assed. They didn't really care about making a couple of those games compared to Battlefield but it still pulled resources away from Battlefield. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, that's what's going on. They're taking it seriously. I can't promise you it will be good, but they, I, they, they're, I, I suspect there's, they know there's a lot riding on it, and I don't think EA will rush this one out. I think EA doesn't want this one to fail. And I mean, EA's not, well, they have all their sports series, but outside of that, EA is not doing super great right now. Yeah, and look at like what happened. Like Battlefield One, I believe, was like one of the only Battlefield games to outsell the Call of Duty of the year. And yet Call of Duty's still doing fine. Warzone is <laughs> absurdly whatever you say about Call of Duty, and it's not my favorite series by a long shot. Well, I have started the recent Modern Warfare, and I think it's great so far. Um, whatever you say about them, they keep churning out products that do well. And at the end of the day, you can't every time they it feels like Battlefield's going to eclipse Call of Duty. It feels like they make a sequel that just squanders some of the gains they made. Yeah, and people like making fun of Call of Duty, but it does really well. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, say what you will. I mean, Call of Duty World War II was for sure, I wouldn't have played it unless I got it for free. 
Yeah. But Modern Warfare, I just started that. <laughs> it's pretty sick, I think, so far. <laughs> so it is what it is. They, they at the very least, seem to be able to... Well, I, mean, I guess you could just make the argument they screw up one every now and then, too, but I don't know. Yeah. They also put out one every year, unlike Battlefield, where it's like every two years. So if they screw one Call of Duty up, it's like, eh, brush People, it off. I, I mean, yeah, I don't remember the order that any of these games are released no. anymore. There's so damn many Call of Duty <laughs> There's games. so many Call of Duties, I don't remember the order at all either. All right, final reader mail. Tactical Gumby writes in and says, are you guys joining the cyberpunk hype train and why not exactly? Well, it seems like you think we're not. I don't know. I mean, I'll just say it. I think to a certain extent, people are making cyberpunk into this big moment because people need a big thing right now. And so they're making it the next crisis because they want another crisis during a year that's been pretty d- depressing. That's not to say I don't think it will be good. I think it should at least be good. <laughs> I would be surprised if it wasn't good. But I don't know if it's great or not. And I don't know. It's an open world shooter made by the makers of The Witcher, which I have mixed feelings on some of The Witcher games. And so it's just going to have to get great reviews and then I'll get it. That's it. Yeah. I, I, I think it I think Cyberpunk will probably be a good game, but I'm gonna be honest, I I don't I feel like I am missing something that other people are seeing in the game because it looks like a really, really beautiful, like it looks really good. It looks like that a beautiful open world game. I don't see like this reinvention of the wheel that I seem to be seeing people have the impression that Cyberpunk 2077 is. It just doesn't look like that to me. It looks like it could be an interesting world, and the gameplay I've seen looks perfectly fine. But other than that, I don't know what else to say about it. I guess, yeah, what I would say about Cyberpunk is I'm, I, I wouldn't be surprised if this got tens and has like a bazillion weapons and customizability and the whole world's fully featured and I get it and I love it. I think there's a good chance that's what happens. Yeah. I just don't see enough people making good arguments for it. I think I see a lot of the videos being shared. In fact, when I'm looking at screenshots right now and a lot of these screenshots look better than the trailers I've seen. So maybe the game will look amazing. Just, just feels like some of the gameplay I see it just seems like what's being shared with me is, and it's not like I'm looking for it, so it's not like I've looked at everything, but I just see people share a video and I'm like, yeah, it looks like he has a gun and shot someone. Yeah, it looks like, yeah, it looks like a first-person, open-world first-person shooter to me. I mean, what I'm looking for is how consistent are the graphics and how good is the gameplay and like, is it just a lot of stuff or is it they did it, they have kind of similar to like what I saw I don't know, in Red Dead Redemption 2 or Horizon, where every side mission almost felt like a main mission because of how well done the side missions in the open world were. That's what I'm looking for. And it, again, it's like, it wouldn't surprise me if that's what happens. It just seems like some of the marketing hasn't proven that to me. It just seems like they go cyberpunk and that's the ad. Yeah, I, I agree. And I, I, I just don't know where the enthusiasm for, it, for cyberpunk comes from, aside from it being the... F- CD Projekt Red's follow-up to The Witcher 3. That seems to be where most of the hype is coming from. Which I know a lot of people love, and I'm not saying it's bad. I haven't played The Witcher 3. No. Because I was pretty turned off from the series by The Witcher 2, if I'm being honest. Um, So maybe that's why I'm not that excited for it, is because CD Projekt Red hasn't proven to me to be a studio that I I personally care about. (laughs) Yeah. And again, it's not that you dislike them, right? No. No, I, I think based on what I've seen, it looks like The Witcher 3 for it, it's a game that a lot of people like that. I don't know. 
just doesn't interest me that much. I think it looks more interesting than The Witcher 3, and that's not so much a diss on The Witcher 3 so much as just me saying for my particular taste, this looks more interesting. It's a more unique setting than The Witcher. Yeah, I... Yeah, I don't know. I'm looking at screenshots now, and I have to admit the graphics look really good. But again, I think what it's going to come down to is, if I'm being honest, Deus Ex Mankind Divided had absurd graphics on the higher settings, I thought, in some scenes. Almost photorealistic in some areas. And it ran kind of crappy, and it wasn't that open of an open world, though. So what would what would impress me about Cyberpunk is if, you know, a very comparable game, I think, to Deus Ex, <laughs> is if what Cyberpunk did is it was consistently that quality with even better graphics, and it actually was huge, right? If I actually could go in most buildings, if it had a huge, fully featured world, because I just, too many open world games sometimes feel like a lot of space filled with nothing because I can't go in any building. Yeah, they, they gave you a six-inch deep ocean to play in. So what would impress me in Cyberpunk is if it isn't a six-inch deep ocean, basically. Yeah. And, Not, I, and I, I'm hoping that's what it is, and maybe I just haven't watched enough to see that that is what it is. A lot of people like going deeper than six inches, Dan. <laughs> Fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> you don't like my joke? No, not really, Tom. Okay. Not, not really. Well, on that note, uh, that's that's the reader mails. That's the stories of the week. Uh, and uh, I don't know. I mean, I guess just final thoughts. Uh, we have the you know twelve years of PC gaming series coming up after this, where I have David does tech stuff. We'll be talking to tech deals, um, and it'll be a lot of looking back at the stories of this year, our overall thoughts for the year, answering reader mails going through what we expect out of next year. And, you know, that's that. It's We're in December, Dan. This is the last big graphics card launch of the year. We did it. And I don't Yay. know. <laughs> I, any, any, I mean, it's any reflective thoughts here on that? I don't know. It's, it's been a year. Um, to summarize this year in, CP, in the PC hardware, not CPU hardware, in PC hardware, um, I would say there were a lot of impressive launches for more than what? and CPUs. Yeah. But unfortunately they're at, I think, uh, especially on the GPU front, inaccessible price points, which is unfortunate. Like for most people. Had, yeah. Had they launched these for more interesting prices or I, I think it would be a lot more exciting and I'm glad AMD is competing in the high end again to see some competition. And hopefully that drives down prices in the future. I mean, it kind of reminds me of like that reader mail I got that I answered on Loose Ends and also touched on in my 6900 XT video, like how will AMD respond to NVIDIA's TI refreshes? And the answer is just actually hitting MSRP. I, I, I think people are forgetting just like this year started with upmost Upmost optimism. We had a, we were coming off the heels of a Zen Two, which crushed Intel. No one ever thought it could happen. AMD finally firmly did everything well, giving you all of these cores, great 120 hertz gaming performance. Sure, the 5700 XT didn't take the performance crown, but they were just as efficient as Turing again, and at least competing up to four hundred dollars. Whereas before, it was like, eh. And everyone was excited for Big Navi Ampere, and well, in some ways, Ampere wasn't as good as we hoped. When it comes to efficiency, and well, AMD's ray tracing wasn't as good as we hoped. They both delivered. They delivered yeah. a performance increase that was better than the last gens. 
And Zen 3 delivered better than most people expected. So look, Zen 3 delivered, Ambeer delivered, RDNA 2 delivered, but there's just no such thing as bad products, just bad prices. And so I think people are just forgetting that this, on paper, this was the most interesting year ever in the past decade, I think, of gaming hardware, including the consoles. This is a better console launch than the previous ones. This is way more interesting. The games are better. They run better. It's right. Like, don't forget that, people. And I would say I do think some of the initial enthusiasm about graphics cards was we just hadn't seen new high-end graphics cards or a new uh, uptick in uh, the enthusiast level performance for like two years. So people were, I think, were blowing out of proportion um, what Ampere did in some ways. Like it was <laughs> it, it was a good. It was a good uh, product over product launch. You have to remember that those what they were launching against were two year old products. Yeah, like, it, it, great. You guys did got sixty percent better 40, performance. Forty more, but more like forty. Forty forty percent better performance for three hundred more dollars two years later. Cool. Yeah, and and I think that's why people are all of a sudden just so disillusioned at the end of the year is everything costs so much more. And, and people are forgetting like, hey, look, there's a lot of reasons prices are up and yeah. they will most likely come down before summer next year. Um, yeah, I don't know. We're almost getting into what we already are going to talk about in the upcoming episodes for the remainder of the year too. So I, I don't want to get into it too much, but yeah, I guess that's kind of a closing thought is, look guys, this was the most interesting year to cover ever. This was a huge year for the channel. Channel. Yeah. And my inability to talk. Now, apparently I said <laughs> flab shit in the newest video instead of flagship. Which I played and I <laughs> nice. did. I like those nice. comments. I'm like, yep. So I said, so. Uh, but um, anyways, uh, Moore's Law is brain dead. But yeah. Oh, shit. But yeah, so I mean, I, I just don't forget you know, this has been an incredible year for the channel. It's been an incredible year to cover it. And it has been pretty great most of the year in terms of building PCs. It's just unfortunate what's happened at the end. And this too will pass, you know. And I don't think it's going to be less interesting. Here's what I would put it. Do I think literally everything in 2021 will be as interesting as literally everything in 2020? I don't know. But I think the next 18 months will be just as interesting as the last 18. Uh, yeah, I think that's a good way to put it. And I hope that interesting new stuff that's coming out is at a price where it's actually, in my opinion, worth buying. Yeah. Well, at the end of the day, though, that will do it for this episode. And there will be more rolling out in that end of year series for the remainder of the year and die shrinks. And, uh, you know, and there will be a loose ends with you probably actually in it, I'm guessing, at the beginning of January. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we've got plenty of content coming the rest of the month. Remember, you get early ad-free access to it if you support us at the property on Patreon. You get to submit reader mails. If your questions answered by me and guests that come on air. And then you get, a, yeah, I mean, exclusive podcasts like Die Shrink that are just never public and go to the patrons thanking them for their support, not just thanking them for their support. It's just easier to post things to Patreon. I never get, there's no flagging or things to worry about with YouTube or, you know. So it is what, you know, don't forget that we're here because you support us. If there wasn't the Patreon of almost a thousand patrons, we wouldn't be able to do this. 
And we do intend to do so much more this year if we can hit that goal and then start working on another goal. I don't know. I think it's going to be a lot of change over the next year, just as much as this one, if not more. I don't know. And, and you know, thanks for listening, guys. It's, it's been yeah, incredible. Thanks. Us growing. If you think about it, at the beginning of 2019, it was nothing. I was like, nothing. Yeah, that's true. It's weird. Hundreds of subscribers. That was when the first ended. That was when the first series was done. And then, yeah, it's it's been a crazy year. And we hope you will be along with us for the ride and supporting us to grow even more next year. I think we did it, Tom. I think we did it. Thanks, everybody. Take care. Goodbye. The following podcast was brought to you by the YouTube channel and website Moore's Law is Dead. Moore's Law is Dead and Broken Silicon are trademarks of their creator, Tom. That guy is me, and I am indeed the creator, editor, writer, and showrunner of Moore's Law is Dead podcast, videos, articles, and other media. However, Moore's Law is Dead is a team with Broken Silicon co-hosted by my brother, Dan, audio editing by Gerard Cortez, and select technical editing by Carbon Cry. You can find all of our information, including how to get a hold of us, at www.moreslawsdead.com. And if you are a fan and would like to send mail or other hardware, please mail parcels to Moore's Laws Dead, P.O. Box 10468, Peoria, Illinois, 61612. And speaking of fans, without exaggeration, the patrons are responsible for the continued distribution of the content you just listened to. And so if you have some extra money, but only if you do, please consider supporting us. For just $2 a month, you get access to the exclusive podcast, Die Shrink, voting on subjects of future podcast episodes, the ability to have your questions read aloud on Broken Silicon, Die Shrink, and Loose Ends, and of course, the Moore's Law is Dead Discord full of like-minded people who would love to meet you. I am one of them. And at higher tiers, you get access to ad-free episodes of Broken Silicon, the back catalog of Flyover States podcast, thanks in the credits of videos and podcasts and other perks as well. And if you cannot afford to support us, please just share Moore's Laws Dead videos and podcasts with friends and family on social media and Reddit. And give Broken Silicon and Flyover States a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. All of this really does help so much more than I think anyone realizes. If you'd like to advertise on the podcast or a person of interest who would like to be a guest, please reach out to the email address mlhbdead at gmail.com. But as I said, this podcast would not be possible without its fans supporting it. And so now it is time to give a personal thanks to the greatest of the fans. The following supporters are at the 10 gigahertz or higher producer levels. Matthew McMullen, Telos, Dean, Benny Berlin, Justin Yunt, Thomas Rupp, I love you, Lennon, Jim Boggs, Joshua Albin, Muhammad Alkawari, Frederick Lau, James Crassa, Justin Parrish, Zachary Martin, Terrence Herod, Brad Medlin, Phil S., Courtney Elliott, The Ninth Dude, Greg Renegar, TSBCFS, Chrysantine, Travis Gooding, The Mechanical Philosopher, Lee Wilkin Kilo, Fatboy Diesel Daniel Hyde, Dave Kunky, Christoph Novak, Jack O'Neill, Matt Salem, Aaron Close, Juan Garcia, Master Andy Juan, Sadler Sadler, Isaiah Godner, Alethros, Telos, Hey There's a Kitty, Greg T. Wanjik, Jacob Barber, Xodiac, Santana, Matthew Lane, Joe McMorrow, Jan Rauner, Robert Duck, Street of Full, Allie Robertson, Eric Jackson, Jonathan, Sean Grant, Evan Dingle, Dominique Cox, Stefan, Original Ross, HardForeRoom.com, Sam MacArthur, Total Silo, Sil Connor, Michael Casa, Andrew S., Blake, Aaron Keith, Gary Baldino, Endless Loggins, Tom Sanfilippo, Justice Brennan, Ivan K., Trevor Powers, Stu, Alenia, Joshua Stavis, Daniel Nishbaugh, Franco Frederick, Hardware Numbers, Eric Carastillo, Dark Rain 2049, Lane Perry, Joseph Caraman, Carlos Valdez, Carnivore Bear, MacDo226, Zebra Z Burr, Zlicky, Martin Porsegji, 
David Cowden, Ricky Tan, Garanadin, Patrick J.S., Justin Staples, Freddie Canoas Jr., Christopher Foster, Kiwi Phil, Joaquin Hagen, Sarah Light, Anthony Gareffa, Matthew Griffin, Alex, Jor Floria, Carl Marco, Deke, Jeezy Raman, Raul Abeneni, Suzuna Maria, Jake Dude 23, Brian Riggleman, Chris Williams, Ryan Danescu, Dave McCoy, Falco Maleb, Messiers, Paul Bagden, Martin Svensson, Andrew, Thomas Summers, Maurice Courtois, Matthew J. Link, Mose from Oz, My Sharona, Derek File, Roman, Jacob Stankowitz, Jack Pym, Wakir Khan, JBG, Stephen Hart, Christopher A. Butler, Charles Antoine Futo, Peter Moore, Chris Licata, Justin Thomas, Sam Miller, James Kitchens, Kevin Chen, Shakir, Dean Dispovsky, Dystopiate, My Name is Nobody, Ruben Marr, Louise Correa, John Jameson, Eshil Dar Epshin, Luca, Anders Bourbon, Matthew Lazier, Tim Robbins, Arpit Sharma, and of course, thank you to Sahara for the music. <laughs>